Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be diving into the first installment of our new three-part bi-weekly series dedicated to dissecting season by season the greatness that is the television show Avatar The Last Airbender. start out with some news we mentioned it last week and sadly it came to fruition we have another corona shuffle that happened and it's one of the films in my roster for the box office draft venom let there be carnage sadly has been delayed a few weeks from september end of september whatever it was to now mid-october october 15th which puts it right after no time to die and right before Dude. Dune, it's also opening, I think, on Halloween Kills, like when that comes out. Yeah. October was already crowded, and now it's mm-hmm. even more crowded. Which I think is going to be pretty bad for you, because now you're just taking hits off of yourself, which sucks. You're competing That's what with I'm yourself. saying. It's unfortunate. And I don't necessarily know why. I mean, I guess they think just a few weeks will allow the mm-hmm. whole Delta situation to calm down. But again, they put themselves right in the midst of all these other major releases. I don't know if Sony was anticipating that other films would delay as well and that would clear up October or if this is just a temporary situation and they may be looking to delay it even further. I don't know. But it is unfortunate that that film moved and then it's also unnerving because people are speculating that Spider-Man No Way Home, which has yet to release a trailer. Yeah. And it's August, and it comes out in December. Crazy. That, that may be pushed back, and that Venom may end up taking that slot in December, which would be catastrophic for our box office draft, because that would mean one of our 2021 movies is no longer in 2021. And what do we do then? This corona thing really kept us on our toes for this box office draft. A lot of surprises. Yeah, I'm thinking we'll probably still keep it as a 2021 draft because we can't change the movies now. It would it wouldn't be fair to you. It wouldn't be fair to the sport of the game. So we we just wouldn't know the result until like mid to end 2022, which would suck. But I mean, it is what it is, I suppose. I think Sony kind of shot themselves and you in the foot by putting it there <laughs> in that spot. It's going to be a hard slot to fill because it's got so many big names competing. And, I mean, I think people are going to go out to see Venom, especially because it's Carnage. But, I mean, I think Dune is actually going to be kind of a heavy hitter. I don't think it's going to flop like Blade Runner did. Ooh, and I well, think, I'm hoping that, too. <laughs> I'm think, Well, yeah. I'm thinking Halloween Kills is going to attract a moderate audience, and that's probably going to take a bit from Venom. And, I mean, that sucks for you, dude. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's neck and neck. It could be anybody's game still. That's true, because, again, you do have the lead right now, a sizable lead, because F9 came out and did pretty well. Uh, and I have yet to have any major heavy hitter come out. No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Well, Venom was supposed to be that next one, 
but now it'll come out after No Time to Die. So mm-hmm. we'll to see how that shakes out. In other news, though, some good news for some Hollywood stars. Emma Stone, she has officially signed on for a Cruella sequel. So Disney will not get sued by her uh, since they made that deal. And Ryan Reynolds has just announced that Free Guy, the movie that he stars in that just came out this past weekend, is getting a sequel. And part of the reason for that is because it delivered very handsomely on its box office opening domestically. It got $28.4 million, which is $2 million more than Suicide Squad. Dylan, what are your thoughts? I mean, I'm, I'm glad that Ryan Reynolds is doing great. I'm glad that his movie did fantastic. But I, as someone who has the Suicide Squad in their box office draft, I'm devastated that this did better. I'm devastated that anything does better. I'm devastated that the Suicide Squad, the squad, the Suicide Squad is doing bad. I'm just devastated in general, I suppose, from that sort of drop. Um, I think I'm going to go see Free Guy sometime this week. I think it looks okay. I think I'll have a good time. That way we can talk about it if we do an August uh, grab bag reviews. Uh, really, really upset. Yeah. It, the Suicide I Squad mean, is doing bad. It's good for Ryan Reynolds for sure. My mm-hmm. man was putting a lot of effort into promoting this film. Yeah, he was. Doing what he normally does, which is create his own advertising material. And it's been getting a lot of positive reviews. People are saying it's just a good time. Uh, and it's got an interesting concept, right? Mm-hmm. A video game AI coming to life, gaining consciousness. So that also has an interesting appeal to it. More family friendly, I would say, than Suicide Squad, the R-rated film. Yeah, certainly. All optional on HBO Max, whereas Free Guy, you must go see it in theaters. So those are some things to consider as why this got more than Suicide Squad and its opening. But certainly an impressive feat for Free Guy and an abysmal showing for the Suicide Squad. Very unfortunate. I also maybe, I was thinking, I mean, if I have the time, I may go see Free Guy as well, just because it seems like a nice lighthearted film. Um, yep. But Let's go down the list and see how long it takes us to get to the Suicide Squad in its second weekend. <laughs> Great. So after Free Guy, we have Don't Breed 2 with $10.6 That's not too big of a surprise. Uh, this is his first weekend. Don't Breathe 1 had a pretty good first weekend when it came out. So I'm not surprised people want to see it. It was well-reviewed. People are fans of it. It is an established franchise now at this point. So $10.6 makes a lot of sense. So that is second place. Yeah. In third place, we have one of my picks for the box office draft, Jungle Cruise at $9 million. It is a 43% drop, which is pretty impressive. Again, we know the third week drops are not as staggering as the second week drops, but uh, another good hold for this one. It now has $82 million domestic and $154 million worldwide. Sorry, his tire got flattened, and then he went to put the spare on, and the spare's also flattened. And See? So That's what happened to Lily. <laughs> yeah, and so he's just going to take my car to go get a new tire. Where'd you leave off? You just kept talking, right? You didn't stop? Yeah, so I finished the Jungle right. Cruise thing. and so I will make a note. Cut yeah, You'll just have to cut it together. On Jungle Cruise. 
bitch. Okay. You finished Jungle Cruise completely? Yes, and then okay. it would turn over to you for respect. Okay. After Jungle Cruise was respect with 8.8 .8 million. This is also its first weekend. Uh, it's a pretty sizable chunk for a biopic that didn't get a lot of press, didn't get a lot of advertisement and attention, at least not that I, anything that I saw. Uh, Jennifer Hudson's in it. Apparently she's great as always. So 8.8 .8 million makes, also makes sense. It's a pretty standard weekend. No, no big surprises so far. And in fifth place, Don't we see it. The Suicide Squad with 7.7 .7 million. The drop for this film, the second weekend drop, the <laughs> notorious second week drops. This one for Suicide Squad was truly incredible. 70%. A full I'm 70%. Devastated. The greatest drop of any DCEU film. And it is the second greatest drop for the HBO Max day and date films. Although here is a silver lining. The number one greatest drop was. Mortal Kombat, and that also happened to be the film that garnered the most viewings on the HBO Max platform when it debuted. It got something like three, north of three million households watched it. Mm -hmm. So Side Squad came in second in terms of how many people at home, how many households viewed it on HBO Max. So there is clearly a relationship here between the drops uh, at mm -hmm. the box office and the number of people who actually viewed it at home. So I guess it's good news that on the HBO Max platform, people are seeing this. But when you look strictly at the box office, it does look really sad, really pathetic. Uh, very unfortunate for the Suicide Squad and DCU. Yeah, I really wish there was a way we could incorporate those at-home numbers somehow into our box office total. But I think because we knew ahead of time when we were making the draft which movies were going to be coming out on streaming services and which ones weren't, I feel like that would be unfair because I knew the Suicide Squad was going to do same day on HBO Max and I knew it would probably affect it. I just didn't think it would affect it this much. And I didn't think the Delta variant would happen. And I just think it made the perfect storm and the Suicide Squad just bombed because of it, which sucks. Sucks so bad. True. I was really counting on this one to be my mediocre one. That way Ghostbusters could be my real risk. And now this one's failing, so Ghostbusters has to pull through. Otherwise, I am absolutely fucked. Ghostbusters has to come in clutch and make a lot of money. And if it doesn't, you win. Like, that's just it. Yeah, we'll have to see if that <laughs> ends up happening. I don't know if Ghostbusters Afterlife is what you want to stake your whole hopes on. but we It's will too see. late, I did. I already Stranger, did. <laughs> Stranger things have happened, so we will end up seeing how... The rest of our box office draft unfolds as the results continue to pour in. But in other news, old 2.4 million this weekend, which is its fourth weekend, it has 42 million domestic, which just to rub some salt in the wound, is currently the same amount that Suicide Squad has grossed at I the domestic you. box office. <laughs> I hate that. I hate everything about that. That really sucks. God damn it. That blows, especially because the budget on the Suicide Squad was so much bigger. It was than old. massive. It was huge, it was huge, and the budget for old was very, very low. Like it was just M Night Shyamalan financing it, and so he's made a good chunk of money back. So, like, fucking good for you, M Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I guess fuck James Gunn. Wow. Yeah, unfortunately, Black yeah. Widow in its sixth weekend got two million. That's okay, I guess. I mean, six weekend, sure. After Black Widow was Stillwater with 1.3 million. 
In ninth, The Green Knight has 1.16 million. And in last place in our top 10, Space Jam with 1.11 million dollars, which gives it a final domestic total of 68 million before it drops off of our top 10 most likely for the next week, which sucks because that's that's bigger than the Suicide Squad. And <laughs> with seeing the trend of how the Suicide Squad is going, if Space Jam ends up making more than the Suicide Squad, I will be I will I will kill myself. I will. <laughs> that was just Space Jam, the worst movie I've seen this year that I've only seen half of. This is I've seen the last half of Space Jam. Just come on, guys. Let's put our money into something that's worth it. You could have watched Space Jam at home. Why didn't you watch Space Jam at home? Why did you watch the Suicide Squad at home? You're killing me, people. Come on. Dylan, did you see Suicide Squad in theaters? Fuck you. I did not. <laughs> So you're hating yourself, Dylan. This is I don't have the problem, money, Ryan. God. Well, there you go. That's why people were watching at home. I didn't see Space Jam in theaters. Could you imagine if I had? That'd be devastating. That'd be so that'd sad. be so hilarious. <laughs> Could you? You would have been better off choosing Space Jam in the draft. I really would have at this point. Yes, which really sucks because I would never have thought to pick Space Jam not once in my entire life. Anyway, we have some box office predictions. Of course, Free Guy is still going to be killing. Not a lot of releases. We have Reminiscence is coming out, which is the Lisa Nolan Joy. Or Joy Nolan. Lisa Nolan Joy. Lisa Joy Nolan. It's one of the two. It's one of the two. She's Lisa Joy, and she's married to Christopher Nolan's brother. So Lisa Joy's movie, Reminiscence with Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson and Sandy Newton. Uh, I, I'm not super excited for this movie. I gotta say mm-hmm. it's not, it's not drawing me in too much. If the reviews come in good, I may stop by the theaters, but I don't know. I haven't seen a lot about it. I haven't seen a lot of advertisements about it. I haven't seen a huge push to go to the theaters to see it. Not like Tenet. So I don't, I don't know. I think this might be a skip or maybe just watch it on HBO max. Cause it will also be on HBO max. Yeah, I think it definitely would be worth an HBO Max watch, mm-hmm. but it's definitely one of those films that anytime I see a trailer for it, and I do, I have seen quite a bit of promotion for it, I'm not exactly pulled in to go see it mm-hmm. in theaters or like see it right away when it drops on HBO Max. It's yeah. definitely not one of those films for me. So we'll see how that ends up coming through. It probably won't take the number one box office spot. Uh, I think Free Guy will probably still be in that, depending on yeah. its second week in hold. Um, I think Reminiscence can maybe crack double digits, right? It does have some star power. It's got an interesting concept, at least. So maybe that'll draw people in. But I don't know if it'll be able to get enough to overcome Free Guy and be the number one movie at the box office. Uh, Paw Patrol <laughs> is another film coming out, which also is a day-and-day release for Paramount+. Plus. That's certainly not going to be the number one spot, probably not even two or three. Um, Although, again, it's certainly not us. We are not the demographic that is going to go see Paw Patrol. So who knows? Maybe all the family members right as they go to school also want to go see Paw Patrol. Uh, But unlikely that that'll do massive numbers. And then The Protégé, which is an action thriller film starring Mm -hmm. Michael Keaton and Samuel L. Jackson. Directed by Michael Campbell, who did Casino Royale, but then also Green Lantern. 
Uh, this film, I think, is not very well known, so I don't know how well it'll perform. You've done it again, Ryan. It's uh, it's Martin Campbell. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> We're bringing There's no it back. way. We're bringing back Ryan getting the wrong name. <laughs> that was a whole fever dream. Three in a row that I missed up. <laughs> like back to back. You put in so much effort into writing these scripts, you just keep missing. It's because you put Michael Keaton, and I think you got Michael and Michael. That's 100%. It, there's yeah. like, whenever I go to type in these names, I definitely, like, a weird dyslexia overcomes me. But then it leaves once we finish filming this thing. Because it never happens anywhere else, but I, that's definitely the case. I just said, I saw Michael Keaton, and I saw M. Campbell. So I said, mm -hmm. oh, Michael. I'm also going to correct myself because earlier when I was talking about reminiscence, I said Tandy Newton, but it's Tandy Wee Newton. She uh, took back her original name. And okay. I just I remember it after I said it. All right. Now we can get into our main topic of discussion for today. We are doing a deep dive analysis on Avatar book one. It is the first of a three part series where we do each season, each book, a different episode. And this is the first of those three. Are you excited, Ryan? Oh, I am very excited. As we discussed in that digressing episode, mm -hmm. this is something, a show we've loved for the longest time. It's definitely one of the most well-regarded, well-beloved shows out there, especially since its recent resurgence and popularity when it dropped on Netflix. Uh, interestingly enough, they just recently announced the cast for the live-action adaptation that Netflix is doing. They're going right. to adapt a TV show. It's going to be a series, not a movie. M. Night Shyamalan may be doing okay with old, but... My man was at a low point in his career when he tried to adapt oh, the show yeah. Ooh, to that yeah. movie, The Last Airbender. Atrocious. That was probably, I think that was his lowest point. It was that, or didn't he make After Earth too? He did. I think After Earth, I think After Earth seen, is I, his lowest point. I've seen it. Oh, you have? You think that's I've worse seen, than The Last Airbender? There's just something about it that's just so <laughs> awful. Like, Avatar is horrible because we have something that can, we can compare it to. Like, if the if the TV show Avatar didn't exist and Avatar the movie existed, like, it'd be bad still, but it wouldn't be as bad because we had nothing amazing to compare it to. After Earth, we have nothing to compare it to, and it's still just as bad. Like, it's just brutally awful. It's, it's all about... It's like suppressing emotions or something. It's just... It's just disgusting. Let's let's stop shitting on M. Night Shyamalan because I do like some of his films. So let's 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 put that away for now. Let's focus on the good stuff, which is Avatar, the, the series. Yes, which is, again, phenomenal in so many ways, which is why we wanted to discuss it and then also do a deep dive on it. So rather than just doing a review where we just go over the series and give our general thoughts, we wanted to approach this in a way where we did a true, genuine analysis of Avatar, and we sort of dig into why does it work? Why is it such a good show? Why has it connected with so many people? Uh, and there's, again, many different aspects to Avatar that work so well, but we're going to hone in on the writing, specifically with the world, world building, character creation and development, and then the thematic messaging that it carries throughout the show. We could make entire episodes dedicated to the animation and all the attention to detail that goes into that stuff, mm -hmm. all the voice acting work, all the other technical aspects, the music, all this stuff's incredible and certainly helps elevate Avatar to be what it is, which is one of the best shows ever. Mm -hmm. But again, for this show, for these episodes that we're doing, we're going to hone in on the writing aspects, again, going over how it creates its world, 
how it conveys the lore, how it builds up its magic system, and then how it connects that stuff, interweaves it with the character arcs that it sets out for itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we're going to be digging into. And for me, like a selfish reason for a uh, reason for doing this is when I'm going to write one of the hardest aspects for me, the thing that I sometimes struggle with the most is mm -hmm. conveying and finding a way to pace out the information that I give to the audience, because similar to how like when you're in season two of a show or season three, like you're many episodes in, you have the basic understanding of the world, how it functions, how it works to yeah. the point where you're able to anticipate some of the things that happen. You're able to know, like you're able to make predictions and create theories based on the elements that you've been given. Mm -hmm. um, and so you already have a solid understanding of, okay, this is how the world works. These are the different aspects of it. When you're writing, you also have all that information. Like you know how everything works. But as a viewer, when you start a show or when you read a book or whatever it is, you have a clean slate. You don't know anything really about the lore, how it works, anything like that. Um, and so you gradually get acclimated to it through the information that the writers give to you. For me, I always struggle to find that balance of how am I able to pace out this information that I give to the audience in a way that won't be frustrating for them by withholding too much, but it also keeps it intriguing, somewhat mysterious, that allows them to question things that are going on. Uh, but also begin to be able to piece things together. Like that's a really difficult balance that Avatar is extremely good at. And so that's Very why good. I also wanted to, in doing this sort of exercise where we look at the fundamental parts of Avatar, I wanted to hone in on that world building stuff and how we see bit by bit, step by step, episode by episode, how it sets that foundation, establishes these core concepts, and then is able to layer upon them over and over again until we get to right season three where there's all these different histories and lores and backstories and whatnot that we're already so familiar with um, and well aware of. So that's another reason why I think doing mm -hmm. it this way, at least for me, is going to be so interesting. Um, and then same deal with the characters. Because, I mean, I don't think we have to say it, but Zuko's arc that he goes through in the series is probably one of the most well-known character arcs mm -hmm. ever certainly one of the best and i think i mean this trope of like the villain turned hero thing wasn't invented by zuko but i think uh in our like cultural consciousness like in today's world uh anytime that trope comes up i think it's compared to zuko's because of how effective it was and how mm -hmm. much of a almost formative experience it was for people in our generation like who yeah, watched it growing exactly. up and then have, of course, revisited it in the time since. So definitely a lot of good stuff here in Avatar. If you're a fan of stories or a storyteller yourself, you can learn a lot from it. And so that's what we're going to hope to do through this series. Try to shed some light on why Avatar is so effective at what it does. Mm -hmm. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A 
hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. For me personally, I don't think I struggle a lot as a writer with the aspect of knowing when to share information and when to put that in. Although I'm not like particularly good at it, I just don't think that is like my main focus of like learning. But it is important to look at Avatar because when you look at when they give out such information, they know when to do it naturally and when to do it in a way that it doesn't seem like they're info dumping except for like the main title sequence, of course. And it just kind of seems like you're learning information with the characters when you're supposed to and you're learning information apart from the characters when you're supposed to so that gives sort of a dramatic irony when it needs to but not when you know it is it is uh, unbearably stupid so i think they do such a good way at combining that natural method of learning information that i think everyone should be able to learn from it like it's just so incredible how they do it and we're gonna talk a lot about that because especially book one water where you're setting up this world and doing this world building it's very important for you to learn gradually about the rules of the world and the different places in the world and then how that affects the characters and the story. So that world building aspect is a huge part of the first season in, in particular. Right, for sure. And before we jump into actually doing our episode by episode analysis, I just wanted to ask you yes, where you first became aware of Avatar The Last Airbender, your first experiences watching it, and then your relationship to it since then. So Avatar came out in 2005 when I was five years old. And so there's no way I would have been clicking through the channels to try and find... Why did you wink at me? <laughs> <laughs> you winked at me when I said... I was, trying to, I... See. <laughs> I was trying to see if you were actually... Because half the time I don't pay attention to the video when we're doing it. So I wanted to see... If I were to do something stupid, if you would actually catch on to it, and I, if I could throw you off, and apparently, I did. I said, I'm sorry. I, I said I, it came out when I was five years old, and you just gave me a good wink. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. Okay. okay. It came out when I was five years old, so there's no way I would have known to like click through the channels and find this or know that it was coming out or anything. But my brother was 10 years old when it was coming out. And he was the one who was watching it. And, and of course, being the younger sibling, I wanted to, you know, hang out with him and I wanted to be him. And I wanted, to, I was like, I looked up to him like physically and mentally. Like, I, like, so I wanted to watch everything he watched. So I watched Avatar because he watched Avatar. And so we both started watching Avatar. We would watch it week by week. I think at some point maybe I fell off, but I was I remember definitely being there at the end. And I remember watching the last few episodes week by week. And I remember being really excited when I did that. I was very young. I think the final season came out in 2008. Like the final episodes came out in 2008. Yeah, so I was like eight-ish when those yeah. last few episodes were coming out. And so I was like fully engaged. I like I like developed as a child watching this show so that's really interesting to think about was that i watched it as i grew up yeah i have a similar story where when it was coming out i was watching it i don't think i was watching the first season as it was airing because again mm -hmm. i think i was too young for that but definitely sometime in 06 i was catching up on like the reruns because of course they would just play 
that stuff nonstop. And so I would watch that. And then I was hooked. I mean, I genuinely love that show. So I would remember coming home from school, doing what I needed to do, and then sitting in front of that TV, waiting for the Avatar episodes to come on. And I remember distinctly as well, the very final episodes, like the preparation for that. Mm -hmm. And I think it was released as four different parts. Yeah. Like this was the Melon Lord. Yeah. (laughs) And so I remember waiting for that each time. And uh, it was so good back then. And being able to rediscover it on Netflix. And then, Mm -hmm. because I mean, since it like closed out and back during the time when I was still watching Nickelodeon, it would still have those reruns. And so I'd watch it then. But it wasn't a full on experience of going through the full show start to finish, mm-hmm. um, which being able to do that again recently has been so rewarding, so amazing. Mm-hmm. This show is legitimately incredible. I was also watching it, like when I first started the rewatch, I was also happening to watch Breaking Bad and The West Wing. It's like so your three favorite shows. I, that's what I'm saying. I was just... You were so man, overwhelmed with I was good watching content. great stuff, like absolute pillars of incredible writing and I was just consuming it every day. So it was amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to get to discuss this, which again, for us who watched it as children or then people who weren't able to see it when they were growing up, but then discovered it as young adults or essentially adults, they also have the same love for it, which I think speaks to not only the timeless themes in it, but just how effective it was at creating this world and creating these characters that, any age could enjoy. That's good. That's good to hear. I'm glad we have similar backstories. I'm glad we both were able to watch it as we were growing up instead of instead of just finding it as older kids. I know. Before we ever met Dylan, we were connected by our love for Avatar, watching it as it came out. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful indeed. Now we're going to start with our episode by episode analysis we thought that this would be the best way to sort of dive deep into each season in a structured manner so we're going to go by each episode we're going to talk about the characters the world building uh what that episode did for the show overall how it developed the story how it developed the characters and we're going to talk about whether we liked it or not whether we thought that there could be changes definitely no for most of these (laughs) uh and whether it was a filler episode everything 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 so we're going to start with episodes one and two, because they're kind of tied together. Episode one is The Boy in the Iceberg. Episode two is Avatar Returns. Now, this is the very first episode. You have the title sequence that is extended to do the full info dump. It is a lot longer than the usual title sequence, and it explains everything you need to know leading into the show. It explains the world. It explains the basic element of the world, which is that some people can bend the four elements It explains the Avatar, it explains the Fire Nation attacking and the starting of the war, but it doesn't go in depth into any of these topics because that would be the full half hour of that episode would just be going in depth about everything. It just explains the very basic premises premises, and lets the rest of the season and the rest of the show sort of develop upon these basic premises. What are your thoughts on the iconic title sequence? The big info dump. As you just said, it's iconic. And I think while it is that upfront info dump, it's sort of a thing that you need to do with these high concept stories where there's Mm -hmm. just some things that we need to know 
that aren't going to ever be conveyed naturally or organically in the story itself because obviously i mean the people are living in this world they don't need to be explained to them that gravity exists or that right we walk upright basic things aren't going to be things that they just casually talk about in discussion so for us in order to get this understanding of the world we need that upfront introduction and so it's quick it does what it needs to do it doesn't overstay its welcome and it allows us to be prepared going into it um, but then it also if you ever happen to miss that iconic info dump at the beginning and the opening credits it does still acclimate you in the episode itself and mm -hmm. you are able to learn that way and so the very opening of the first episode has Katara and Sokka they're on this little canoe going through the southern waters and they're trying to catch fish and you see Katara grab a fish in a little water bubble that she's water bending and boom there's an introduction right there because she accidentally gets popped over Sokka and he gets a little bit upset uh, and he mentions like anytime you're using this magic I always get wet something like that so we already understand okay this is magic it's something that Katara has not Sokka so it's not everybody's bending but this is a magic that belongs to only a few people um, and that he even I think mentions it's something crucial to our culture or something along those lines um, so you get in that dialogue it is somewhat of like mm. expository stuff but but yeah, not you're even. able to understand through what you're seeing initially like those very first few minutes you're able to get that understanding of the world that the title sequence also gives to you mm. um, it just does it in a much quicker manner but again you're able to pick up on that stuff in the episode itself um, and then they also do it in a way that's based out of the characters right Sokka and Katara are siblings that little rivalry the antagonism siblings have is established right away um, as they're bickering so while it is again exposition that they're delivering to you it doesn't feel like you're sitting down being lectured at it does come from the characters and their dynamic so I think in that sense it's it's effective but then at the least it's it's acceptable yeah, absolutely. It's very natural the way they explain things because you have that whole dialogue and that conversation you're talking about and the way that they're bringing up these topics is so in non it's a very non-expository way to bring up exposition. It's very much them just having a normal conversation in the world that they've created without any way of physically saying, oh, you are a waterbender. Oh, I'm not a waterbender. Oh, some people are waterbenders. Like the opening title sequence is that bit of total exposition. But then anytime you have an actual scene in the show, there's never a moment where they're like truly just like explaining something and giving you kind of any kind of info dump unless it's like a, a flashback or like a description of something. It's very much natural dialogue and it's very much just uh, assuming that the audience will make these little connections in the subtext of a scene and be able to make those connections that they need to make. Yeah, and so further your point there, the something that we hear in the big info dump, pure exposition is only the avatar can master all four elements in the episode itself we get that same information conveyed from a character in a natural way because it's zuko saying that i need to do more than just basic training with firebending because i know the avatar out there has probably already mastered all four elements so boom that information is 
conveyed to us naturally through Zuko, who wants to capture the Avatar. He knows that he needs to get stronger because there's the potential that this Avatar has already mastered all those elements. So, of course, he's not going to stack up if he's only doing the most basic firebending techniques. Mm -hmm. You also get a lot of exposition about the Southern Water Tribe. You know that the men are gone and that they're off at war. That, that like elevates the idea that they are at a war. If you're looking at the Fire Nation ship, like the design of that ship and the design of the soldiers is very uh, fascist and very like evoking very hard lines in that kind of animation. I know we were going to talk about the animation a lot, but just the way they design those characters, the way they design that ship, and the fact that they are firebenders, which is such a brutal form of combat, you get that sense of like warriors that is evoking from that visual stimulation. And so it's the whole crafting of using visual storytelling and natural discussion to bring out exposition. That is such a enticing way to explain things to an audience as opposed to just uh, saying what you want to say. Right. And since you did bring up some of the animation, the way that it helps convey that there are four distinct nations, each of mm -hmm. them having their own element is through the color palette. I mean, we see blue clearly for water tribe, the, orange slash yellowish for the air nomads green for earth and then of course the fire nation is red so that is conveyed to us over and over again i mean all the attire that they wear a lot of the the architecture and whatnot they're also distinguished uh from nation to nation so that's another really effective element of world building that can be input in the writing of course like you specify that but then visually for the audience we see that visually we see the colors are different we see as you mentioned the ship designs the fire navy how that's distinct um and definitely invokes something more of a sort of evil presence uh as compared to the canoes the wooden canoes that the water tribe is going to be using so another key element of the world building that we see really early on in the pilot episode of avatar Mm -hmm. and another thing with the animation of the character design is we have our introduction to appa who's a flying bison which is not a creature that like the Sadly, average person could fathom exist. and also does not exist and so we don't know what this thing is looking at it until ang says it's a flying bison and we also don't even know that it can fly until like the end of the episode because appa is tired so appa doesn't fly appa swims through the whole episode until the very end so you have this big beast kind of thing, and it is, like, the way they designed it is adorable, but they have moments, and we can talk about this more in Season 2, because it happens more in Season 2, where Abba can, like, show his teeth and get really angry, and you can actually really see the expressiveness in the character design, which is really well done. It's a really good way to sort of build that world around these very high-concept creatures that we couldn't imagine outside of our realm. Exactly. And to dig into some of the character stuff now um because again there's a lot of it. it's a pilot episode so they have to establish these characters it's our first impressions with them so they have to do a lot of work while still kickstarting the plot so that's why pilots are always kind of difficult but avatar is definitely a solid example of a pilot that does all these things right and so we first see Sokka and katara and again i already mentioned we see their sibling relationship them sort of butting heads with each other we see that Sokka's kind of sexist, kind of has some traditional views about like, I'm the man, so I'm going to be the one hunting. There's mm -hmm. no way Katara's going to be able to help. But of course, we saw that she was more effective at hunting since she was able to use her water bending in order to help out. 
Um, but of course, he's just refusing that because he wants to do it himself. Uh, he is also really determined to be a man, to play the part of being the man, to be a good soldier and good leader, since he's essentially the only man left at his tribe, since all the adult men have gone off to fight in the war. So he's the one left behind. So he's sort of the oldest kid. We see him trying to train some of the boys to to be warriors, like to have some of those. Uh, like he's the one fulfilling that role, trying mm -hmm. to teach them and train them. Um, so that's an interesting element of his his initial character, which of course we see get tested in just a few episodes, actually. Um, Katara, she of course is not down with Saga's ignorance and we see her sort of get riled up at that which is what kickstarts Aang getting released. Um, we see her emotion bubbling up, and that also strengthened her bending. Um, so that's mm -hmm. an interesting, again, character moment that we see there. But then it ties into the world bending. We're able to see the connection between emotion and bending. Uh, and then we also see her established as really kind and compassionate, very nurturing. Um, we know that she's a powerful bender, and we also learn that she's the only bender in the southern water tribe and now for our main character ang who we are introduced to very early on as a goofy fun-loving light-hearted kid we see that time and time again when he says want to go penguin sledding with me when he comes out mm -hmm. of his ice shell and then they do end up going penguin sledding um, but he's also at this point he's naive and ignorant because he was trapped in ice for a hundred years and yeah. so he has no idea that, that the world has become uh, ravaged by war so we see him learning acclimating to this new world that's at war that's being uh, attacked by the fire nation and of course that also serves a purpose for the audience we are learning alongside ang some of these things so when they come across that fire navy ship um, mm -hmm. any information that katara gives to ang is also information that we the audience learn alongside him helps us identify with him also helps us get that same understanding of the world we also see that despite all that goofiness, he is very powerful. He's assured in his abilities as an airbender. He's also really caring for others. Because when Zuko shows up at the village, uh, they sort of put up a fight. But once Aang realizes that the village is in danger by him being there, he doesn't want to fight mm -hmm. in that village. He doesn't want to risk anybody yeah. getting hurt. So he says, hey, I'll come with you. I'll let myself be captured if you leave the rest of them alone. And that's what ends up happening. And then we also see when he is captured, he's very confident that he's not going to be captured for long. And he breaks out himself, essentially. So all that shows the different sides of Aang that we're going to see, again, grow and develop over time over the next few episodes. Uh, Zuko, of course, we see him as the driven, hot-headed, completely relentless prince that wants to capture the avatar and as a foil to him iroh his mentor we see him being wise outmannered much more calm uh, but we also see the silliness that will make iroh one of the fan favorite characters we see elements of that in these first two episodes as well so anything else that you wanted to shout out about these characters in the pilot i just like the way they introduce zuko and iroh because they are introduced as the antagonists as being part of this fire nation group of people but they aren't like particularly dislikable as people like zuko is 
very much driven and hot-headed, and he's willing to attack this tribe for sure. But you, there's something likable about his quality and about his character that definitely makes you more attracted to him than you would be like a traditional villain like Zhao, which we'll get to later. And Iroh is this wild and silly kind of character. You're kind of getting the idea of like we get that the Fire Nation is evil at this point. They are the ones who started this war. They are the ones who are continuing this war. But these characters in particular. There's something about them that is different than what we would expect out of like the evil Fire Nation group. And it just sort of plants that seed in the in the mind that like these characters are there's more to them underneath this surface level that they've introduced us to. There's something deeper in there that's more important than the drivenness of Zuko and the the willingness of Iroh to to capture the Avatar with Zuko. There's something deeper in there that we need to get to, which we do get to. For sure. Uh, and so some other things just went out about this episode. We also get the first inklings that Aang likes Katara. <laughs> so one cute little moment is when I think they're on Appa and he's just staring back at Katara, smiling goofily. And she's like, why are you smiling at me like that? And he's like, I was smiling. <laughs> so that shows, I mean, he's enamored with her right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And we, of course, will see that develop over the series. We also see... Aang enter the Avatar state for the first time. So we get to see the uh, first glimpse at the true power that the Avatar holds. Um, of course, you know, the arrow on his head, uh, glowing white, his eyes as well. So we're introduced to that uh, that part of the magic system. Um, and then that I like how that is used in tandem with showing Zuko's relentlessness because Zuko, I think, got kicked off that ship like three times or something like that in that fight. Yeah. And he kept trying to crawl his way back and keep fighting them. So the man was not giving up. But, of course, at that point in time, he was no match for the Avatar in the Avatar state. Uh, so that was really interesting to see. And then some other notes about this is, again, a pilot. So it had to do certain things here that other episodes wouldn't necessarily be concerned with. One of those is establishing a goal for the overall season, like giving us a direction that we're moving in. And in this episode, it's established that we need to go to the North Pole, right? Mm-hmm. Aang and Katara, they need to learn waterbending from a real master. There is no waterbenders in the Southern Tribe, so they need to go to uh, the North Pole, the Northern Water Tribe, in order to get a master. And then we also have the basic season conflict, that dynamic. We have that established. It's Zugo and Iroh. There are antagonists. They're going to be chasing our gang avatar and co um so yeah overall i think a really effective pilot episode mm-hmm. one of one of the strong points for sure anything else you want to shout out about these first two episodes it's just a really well done way to establish a series it gives us our goal it gives us our conflict it gives us all of our main characters and it tells us everything we need to know about them it gives us all of this world building all at once and it does it in a way that we're not even aware that it's doing it in because it's just characters doing scenes that have nothing to do with trying to create a world it's just showing them interacting with the world which is doing it in such a natural way and i just love how they progress that it's very well written very masterful it's it's just it's a very strong pilot very good way to start off a show for sure all right and they build off of that and continue the momentum the momentum in episode three southern air temple so talk to me about some of the elements of world building that this episode is able to introduce 
All right, so now we're leaving the South Pole. We're going to the first place that isn't a water-bending-based area, and that'll be the Air Temple. And there's nobody there, of course, because they were ravaged by war, and they were all slaughtered, unfortunately. And so we learn a lot about the Air Temple and the Air People culture. We meet uh, Momo, which is fantastic. Uh, we learn about Aang's backstory and how he learned he was the Avatar and his his role in all of that. And we get a scene that I think is great where he finds his his master is passed away. He finds his body and he becomes so enraged at the Fire Nation and what they've done to his people that he enters the Avatar state and nothing can bring him back other than Katara, which I think is just such a subtle way of, of nodding to the fact that she is an important person in his life, even though they haven't like interacted too much, but she is she definitely has like an effect on him, like a very strong positive effect on him. Aang, I know you're upset. And I know how hard it is to lose the people you love. I went through the same thing when I lost my mom. Monk Gyatso and the other airbenders may be gone. But you still have a family. Sokka and I, we're your family now. really good it's really cool yeah for sure like you mentioned there when his emotions flare up because he sees his master Gyatso dead sees his skeleton um and it all finally hits him because i think throughout the rest of that episode kyotara and Sokka, who obviously know the reality of the genocide of their nomads they didn't tell him because they wanted to sort of spare him from that pain at least for a little while longer but of course once he sees his old master, there's no hiding from it anymore. Um, and so when he enters the Avatar state, it is only Katara who's able to calm him down. And that shows the empathetic side that she has. Um, she also is able to relate to him by revealing that her mother was killed by the Fire Nation. We mm-hmm. knew that their Sokka and Katara's mother was dead in the previous episode, but now we know why. Uh, it was certainly the Fire Nation that did it. Um, and so they're able to connect in that way. And so Katara is able to bring him down and calm him down. So that shows the power of their connection really early on. We also, as you mentioned, in that air temple, we get to see more of the lore of the Avatar and the fact that it's in a cycle where mm-hmm. the Avatars get reincarnated, reincarnated uh, in a water, earth, fire, air cycle. And the most recent Avatar was Roku from the Fire Nation. Um, and so it's an interesting that, again, we've been, uh, we've had the positioning where the enemies are the Fire Nation, but then we see Roku, the most previous avatar, the one who like, is most closely linked to Aang, is the quote-unquote enemy, right? And so it helps to showcase that it's not going to be that black and white, that binary throughout the whole way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is a super interesting element of it. We also get to see interesting things with the Fire Nation itself. Zuko, who was previously established as the main antagonist, now he sort of gets an opponent in Commander Zhao, and that Mm -hmm. allows for there to be a bigger bad than Zuko, so that we're able to identify with him some more. He sort of becomes a protagonist in this episode, and we're also to see those other elements that you alluded to in the first episode. Like, there's something deeper to Zuko. He's not just a complete evil person 
right? Mm-hmm. We see that through the fact that when he's doing his Agni Kai with Commander Zhao, he chooses to spare Zhao in a way that Zhao certainly wouldn't have done for Zuko. Mm-hmm. Um, so he shows him mercy. That shows us that Zuko does have some ethics there. There is a moral code that he's following. Um, we also learn that he's a banished prince. So that also, I don't know if they outrated it yet in this episode, but that clues us into the fact of this is why he's pursuing yeah. the Avatar so hard is because with the Avatar uh, returning to the Fire Nation under his control, Zuko will have his honor returned to him. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff happens in this episode. Um, and it does a really good job of carrying that baton from the pilot episode, continuing the world building, but then also giving us deeper looks at these characters that we sort of got glimpses of in that initial introduction in the mm-hmm. pilot. Also, Iroh's love of tea is established in this episode. And for it's that perfect. reason, it's one of the most important episodes in the whole series. Of course. Very perfect. I love the, the Agni Kai duel between Zhao and Zuko. I love the idea of introducing Zhao, especially like right away in episode three, because we're given that clue of like Zuko is going to be hunting the gang and putting in Zhao immediately gives us a, a actual villain to root against instead of having us root against Zuko for a long period of time. Because they want us to start sympathizing with Zuko as soon as possible. That way, when because they develop his character throughout the entire series, it definitely has ups and downs. But the sooner they get us to root for him as a character in general, is it, it just becomes so much easier later to switch him from being a person pursuing the Avatar to a person helping the Avatar, which is such a good way for them to do that through Zhao, who's just like the big bad of the season, and you can see it right away in the episode that. The way they animate him, the, the way they give him his dialogue, and the way they sort of present him as this overbearing figure, the sort of, he's like the, he's not actually Zuko's father, of course, but he's like the pseudo judgmental father figure towards Zuko throughout the season, which I love that he has that sort of uh, impression over Zuko. And that's why Zuko is so pissed off by him so much. He's just, he's like this representative overbearing uh dominating father figure which is as opposed to iroh's loving father figure so i I love the the parallel in that right exactly all right for episode four warriors of kiyoshi we get more subtle world building that just allows us to see more of the culture and more of the places that this world offers us we see in kiyoshi island the warriors there are fully composed of women and there's a big sea monster called unagi is that exactly what it's called (laughs) because that's all i can think about that was just ross from friends unagi (laughs) ah salmon skin roll (laughs) so we get to see more of that right these fantastical creatures Um, but then we also are exposed to more of the history of the avatar and the avatar cycle so we know kiyoshi is one of the previous avatars um from the earth kingdom and we see that, at least in this particular village, she is celebrated. Mm-hmm. The Avatar is well-respected here, um, as opposed to in other parts of the world being hunted or being maligned. And those are, I think, really crucial aspects to this episode. Additionally, with the character stuff, we get to see Aang, again, still vying for Katara's attention and affection. Um, but uh, Katara is, at this point, clueless to that. 
So she's not really giving that. So in order to make her jealous, he leans into his status as a celebrity in the city um, and essentially is just being praised by the his groupies on the island. Um, and so that was an interesting dynamic there. Katara and him, they were both trying to pass off like they're not affected by what the other person's doing. Katara pretending not to be impacted by him making her jealous. And Aang, of mm-hmm. course, trying to make her jealous. Um, that was an interesting dynamic. And then Sokka, I think this is really his episode. And again, yeah. as we talked about in the pilot, that sort of sexist traditional view that he has is challenged here. So talk a bit about that, Dylan. So basically he gets introduced to the society where the warriors of Kyoshi are all women and they are all fighters. And he has that opinion of like, girls, so guys hunt. And so he's like conflicted and he thinks that, you know, these girls need a lesson. They need to show him what a guy can do. And then he gets his, his butt whooped and he's sort of humbled by it. And so by the end of the episode, he does learn his lesson. And I think for the most part, for the rest of the season, the rest of the series, really, he's been humbled by this experience. He doesn't really try and, show off the fact that guys are better than girls he's more about like showing that being a guy is awesome and lets the girls be awesome as well which i think is a good lesson for him to learn and i love how the way they approach it is like they also want to get this sort of part of his character knocked out of the way as soon as possible because it is kind of obnoxious that he that we'd had like a whole season of Sokka being like this it would have been overbearing and annoying so they're really trying to to introduce this character Suki who also becomes a love interest which is great and I love how it's sort of like it's not him getting like attacked for his opinions it's definitely them being annoyed by his opinions but really like showing him that he's wrong rather than telling him he's wrong and proving to him that his whole impression of how society works is incorrect just because that's what the water tribe does that's not what the world does, and he needs to understand that. And I think it finally gets through to him in this episode, as opposed to anything that Katara has done in the past, because Katara is his sister. He finally learns this lesson by just physically getting his butt whooped and then watching the Kiyoshi warriors fight off the Fire Nation when Zuko shows up. Yeah, for sure. Again, what a great lesson that this show was instilling very early on. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm glad that that happened right away for Sokka's character. Yes. And we do see that, like, towards the end of the season, that also comes back up, these sort of social norms. Um, but I like that for this character specifically, once he's out of his bubble, out of the Water Tribe world, that immediately gets challenged and he, he immediately grows from it. So that's really beautiful to see, really well done. And as for another key element of this this episode is Aang finally seeing, he saw sort of the good stuff about being the avatar, being celebrated, being mm-hmm. praised. But then he also feels the weight of the responsibility of being avatar when he sees that simply because of his presence in this town, the Fire Nation came and they attacked. And mm-hmm. so towards the end of the episode, he's fleeing on Appa with the gang. He sees Kiyoshi is in flames and he has to, he essentially goes back or like he starts writing the Unagi to spray water onto the town to make mm-hmm. the flames go away. If I have one gripe with this episode, it's that fact. I think it would have been more powerful. And I understand, like, again, we just talked about how they imparted the lesson of, hey, guys and girls can be equal. 
like there's no need to put one down as Sokka was doing mm-hmm. imparting that lessons certainly for the kids to like show that it is still first and foremost has to abide by kid show logic in a way yeah. so I think it probably would have been too dark right away to to have them leave as the city is burning down in flames but I wish in order to further hammer home that point of Aang is now having to see this is the reality of the world he's currently in it's it's war and the fact that he's gonna have to be fighting up against this time and time again and that his presence alone can just be a danger for the people that are around him i wish they would have just had him continue going off instead of having him ride the unagi and be a water hose for the city and put out all the flames Uh, but that's just the one minor issue with this episode other than that i think it's another really strong way to have the characters get developed um, and provide a little more backstory doesn't do anything crazy in terms of furthering the overall story itself but it does help inch forward these characters i think it's okay for me because it's setting up that idea that ang has that no matter what he faces he has to solve the problem his way like without any other help because that comes way at the end of the series and he's he's the kind of avatar he's the kind of person who will see that this is war and he won't play by war rules he'll play by his own rules in a good way and he will try and solve problems how he tries to solve them but he's still learning the lesson of he's the avatar and the avatar is being hunted by the most powerful force in the world and no matter where he goes the people who help him and the people who are around him will be in danger no matter where he goes and he's like he's learning that lesson and you know he maybe he saved them this time but i still think he deep down he knows that next time maybe he won't save them and we learn that lesson, not in the next episode, but the next episode sets it up. King of Omashu, when they finally travel to the the heart of the Earth, one of the hearts of the Earth Kingdoms, Omashu, which is this massive sort of tower city that's sitting on like a big like pillar in the middle of like a canyon. It's hard to describe, but it's really cool looking. It's just like one giant like pyramid of a city that's like a cone kind of, and it's got this cool male system where they have these big tubes that that ang used to ride him with his buddy boomy way back in the day before he was frozen that's really good world building i love the way that it's the earth benders moving the carts instead of any kind of physics it's using the world logic to create a more efficient system which is cool and i think it's a really good way to set up earth bending and how earth benders react like interact with the world and what it looks like animation wise and all of that stuff. This is a good episode to introduce us into earthbending in general. A thousand percent. Yeah, I think it's really important because of that. It gives us that other element, the last one that we haven't seen yet. Uh, and then, as you said, it also shows us how these cultures are developed and shaped by the element itself. They're not just like completely isolated and distinct. There is an, an effect that bending that the magic system has on how the society is developed. And we see that in the package delivery system that Omashu has. As for character stuff, this one for uh, Katara and Sokka, not very important. They sort of take a backseat as they get eaten alive by that fungus thing. What was it called? The rock? The whatever it was. But that crystallization Yeah, it was like essentially rock candy. Yeah, rock candy that was 
uh, encapsulating them. Um, they take a back seat while Aang gets to have himself tested through three trials. Um, a very familiar sort of trope that a hero or knight or chosen one has to go through. Um, and he's sort of challenged to think outside the box. And ultimately, he ends up in a fight where we get to see Earthbending in action with Bumi, uh, who at that point we only know as King of Amashu, fighting Aang. Um, and then, of course, at the end, it's revealed that the King of Umashu is Bumi. And so he gets Ooh. to reconnect with his old friend there. And that's really sweet to see. Um, and then we also get to see uh, like little snippets here where I think it's maybe the first time it's explicitly mentioned that Aang is vegetarian, right? He doesn't eat meat, which mm -hmm. plays into his culture of that sort of monk, Tibetan monk, Buddhist monk type deal where they're meditating a lot. They're not going to harm any creatures if they don't have to. So he's vegetarian there. Um, that's really important. This is the first episode that we don't see Zuko at all. Um, and then the other, the most important element of this episode, of course, is the fact that Cabbage Guy gets introduced. His cabbage is wrecked. I would say this is an important element, but I think the most important element is that we get to see Boomy is fucking jacked. Well, <laughs> that's true. He takes off maybe a close second, and he he's he's just completely constructed under there. It's it's magnificent to see. Yeah, the man was built like an ox. It was huge. Heck yeah. All right, episode six, Imprisoned. This one is definitely a Katara episode, and it's one that I really enjoy. Um, we not only get to see elements of the world building where we get to see how, you know, there's sort of limits on the magic system. Metal cannot be earthbent, mm -hmm. um, but something like coal can. Um, so you get to see, like, there is a limit to what things that come from the earth can actually be bent, um, at, at least in this point in the series, metal can be earthbent. Um, that's the rule that is established for us. And we also see more of how this war, how the Fire Nation's imperialism is affecting the people itself. We see the conquered Earth Kingdom villages and how broken those people are there and how a lot of their people are essentially enslaved. I mean, again, I mean, it's a kid's show, a cartoon, but has a lot mm -hmm. of incredibly deep and impactful, important themes and concepts that they discuss. And we get to see in this episode, Katara uh, really shows different sides to her. We had seen that really caring, gentle side, but now we see this more determined, really principled side of her. She mentions the fact that waterbending is part of her identity when she sees that Haru and other people left in the Earth Kingdom villages are having their ability to bend suppressed mm -hmm. if it's found out that they are benders and they get kidnapped and enslaved. So we see that element of her. We also learn that the necklace she wears is from her mother. Um, so again, another way that we're tying who she is and how she hears herself to the tragedy that was the Fire Nation killing her mother. Um, and when she she ends up getting, well, she chooses to get captured by the Fire Nation in order to go save Haru. And when she's there, she gives a speech. She's trying to rile them all up. She says... Uh, like she's giving that really inspirational speech of the whole brave heart moment. But at the end of it, once she finishes, 
puts a big exclamation point on it, raises her fist, is like, come on, let's fight for your freedom. She says, I'm like, the strength of your heart is what makes you who you are. Like, even without the bending, you can rise up. What do they do? Nothing. I'm sorry, but we're powerless. We'll see about that. Earthbenders! You don't know me, but I know of you. Every child in my Water Tribe village was rocked to sleep with stories of the brave Earth Kingdom and the courageous Earthbenders who guard its borders. Some of you may think that the Fire Nation has made you powerless. Yes, they have taken away your ability to bend, but they can't take away your courage. And it is your courage they should truly fear, because it runs deeper than any mine you've been forced to dig, any ocean that keeps you far from home. It is the strength of your hearts that make you who you are. Hearts that will remain unbroken when all rock and stone has eroded away. The time to fight back is now. I can tell you the Avatar has returned. So remember your courage, Earthbenders. Let us fight for our freedom. They just stay down. They refuse to fight at that moment in time. And I think it was subversive. Like, as a kid, I don't remember the exact feelings I was having. But I'm sure at that point, I mean, we've been trained by any other story we've seen to go, okay, that's the moment where they rise up. That's when they they start to resist. But we see how truly defeated they felt in their minds and in their hearts. Um, and so even though Katara tried to get that inspirational speech, great speech, but it didn't work at that point in time. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, eventually it does end up working, but it's a testament to Katara's character how how much she was willing to do in order to go save and rescue these people since she felt personally that she was the one who got Haru captured because she and him helped save that one old man. And this was a crazy betrayal, man, when they saved the old man and then he's the one who rats them out to the Fire Nation. I thought that was another really clever writing choice there. Um, so this episode, especially because it's so Katara-centric and helps develop her a lot, I think is really, really effective. I love in this episode when they're trying to get kid get uh, arrested and imprisoned, and they're doing the trick where they use airbending to make it look like earthbending, and the Fire Nation soldiers think it's Momo. So it's like, <laughs> that an earthbender, and then they arrest Momo. And who's it? Someone's like, "No, it's her, you idiot!" It was so. Classic. It's so good. I mean, we are talking a lot about the more serious aspects, the role playing, the character creations, but the way that it's able to blend the comedy and the action alongside all these character moments uh, and story moments, it's just so good. Avatar is really able to juggle all these things and help them balance out. Any Anything else you wanted to give a shout out to about episode six? Um, this was not, I think you like this episode a lot more than I do. I enjoy learning more about the Fire Nation and like the aspects of how it, it, terrorizes the population how it runs the population i like learning about that and the world building of it but it's not my favorite episode of the season one of my favorite episodes of the season are the next two episodes which are the winter solstice solstice episodes part one and part two the first one is the spirit world 
it's it's just such a a perfect way for us to be introduced into such a high concept idea as the spirit world is to have Aang need to face this powerful spirit who who is angry and upset over the destruction of nature in its area from the fire nation i feel like using that as the way to it's just such a natural way to get us into this topic that is so high concept is using like giving us a reason for ang to to go to the spirit world and giving him a reason to find avatar roku's statue and connect with avatar roku we just we learned so much in these two episodes and we learned so much about the world and it's done in such an engaging and entertaining way that these two episodes are just like mastercrafts on like exposition and writing. I think it's just absolutely incredible what they do in these two. Yeah, I agree. I think for these two, I like I prefer Avatar Roku better than the spirit world. Mm-hmm. It may just be, I don't know, because that monster back when I was a kid maybe scared me a bit. Um, what was the monster called? I forget. Like Let me the, look it up. Okay, because yeah. He has a scarier form, and then he turns out to be essentially just a panda. But as you were mentioning there, where that spirit was angry and upset over the destruction of nature that was being done by the Fire Nation, Aang feels that same way. In the very opening of the episode, he comes across that destroyed forest, and he really feels guilty and inadequate because this is literally his job as the Avatar. He is meant to protect nature, to protect all life. And so he was failing in that sense and he's coming across the devastation that is being wrought by the fire nation so of course he feels guilty for disappearing 100 years ago feels guilty about the fact that he's still insufficient in terms of bending in order to stop it so i like that parallel that they get between ang and the spirit whose name is hey bay hey bay <laughs> is that true it is hey bay because uh, in chinese hey is hey is black and bay is white <laughs> Oh, there you go. And Panda. Oh, it's look at that. It's perfect, yeah. Incredible. That's another thing as a really quick tangent. That's another thing that in terms of the world building, this uh, these writers for Avatar do really well is the four nations are obviously principally derived from some sort of real-life culture that we have. Fire Nation, Imperial Japan, Earth Kingdom, Chinese. Uh, the... Inuit culture is what inspires a lot of the water tribes and then the Tibetan monks for the air nomads. But they do a lot to make sure that each of them are not just carbon copies of whatever that real life culture is. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of work to integrate other cultures and mix things in there. Like I think yeah. with the uh, the architecture of... Yeah, 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 of the Fire Nation, like there's a lot of Chinese elements that are brought in there, um, and then with the martial art styles, I don't know the exact ones that they chose, mm-hmm. um, but I know that for each of the different bending styles, they have a different uh, martial art that they use as the baseline for it, um, and of course that helps the action be really good, but then also helps give the sense of these are real cultures that are distinct from each other in the story world, um, to the point where they have different techniques for fighting and then that is derived from the element itself and the sort of philosophy behind it with water being more calm and being more fluid fire nation being more about overpowering or at least again initial in this part of the series that's how we see fire bending being used which is really intelligent stuff that they that they do here and care that they put into the different writing choices they make as seen in something as 
simple as hey bay for the name of this black and white spirit Um, but it's something that is utilized essentially everywhere else in this in the story which is why it's so effective on so many levels Mm -hmm. look at that i think what i like about the most of the spirit world episode with hey bay is it's just such a a simple concept as as uh Aang needing to communicate with a spirit to stop it from terrorizing a village. And then you learn that it's more than just a crazy evil thing that he has to stop. It is like an actual being that is upset by something that he's also upset by. Like he's upset that the nature is being destroyed because he's supposed to be preserving it. And so he's like learning these lessons and just doing what he can to make peace rather than create more conflict. And in the end, he gets he wins like he the Hebe is at peace. The people are returned. Everything is set back to normal. On top of that, I also really like the side story with Iroh where he's taking a bath <laughs> and, and the the Earth Kingdom kidnaps him. And they're going to like hold him hostage because we learn about his backstory, about how he is responsible for the siege on Ba Sing Se. And he's like the first person to get through the first wall. Like he never, nobody's ever taken over Ba Sing Se. Nobody's ever gotten to the kingdom and and taking it over but he was able to get through that first gate that first big wall and so you learn that he was a very powerful tactician and leader when he was younger and he was very much a scourge of like the earth kingdom and a lot of other places and so he's not just a silly old man that's wise he's also very a very powerful person you also see how powerful of a bender he is in this episode when he breaks free with zuko and he fights them, and he's breathing fire. It looks so cool. For sure. Yeah, and other, as you mentioned there, we get that understanding of, okay, so Iroh sieged Ba Sing Se, uh, so he was a great and powerful general, but now since then, he's disgraced, um, which is why he's out there with the banished prince. Uh, we also see the important rules being established with the spirit world, something as simple as no bending in the spirit world, uh, and then also the element of the solstice, the winter solstice, blurs the lines between the physical world and the spirit world. And the avatar, who is the bridge between them, of course, is able to make that transition easier. So that information is conveyed to us in the episode 7, the spirit world episode. And in episode 8, Avatar Roku, is where we get to see even more of this stuff come to life. We see, for instance, that Avatar Roku... Uh, when the spirit world and the physical world are most aligned, he's actually able to come in and affect the physical world. Mm-hmm. We see him sort of take over as the uh, Fire Nation army arrives at the Fire Temple, uh, and then he gets them to back off, essentially. This episode, I think, is also really crucial for three other things. One, it shows that the Fire Sages that are at the Fire Temple, which is supposed to be right sort of a sacred thing so you're mostly serving the avatar you're not necessarily being a fire nation person at that point these fire sages Mm -hmm. at this time they're serving the fire lord no longer serving the avatar so it's showing the extent that the yeah well exactly so except for the one dude who does end up becoming the ally for Mm -hmm. um, the gang as they navigate the fire temple we also see that a lot of our characters here are straight up tacticians. They all mm. do really smart things here. Sokka in particular 
who is supposed to be right the leader of the gang like that's supposed to be his role that's the role he wants to assume he's the one that comes up with the idea to use five fireball charges in order to uh, substitute for the five firebending blasts that are needed to open up uh, the fire temp fire temple chamber and when that ends up failing guitar is the one who is able to come up with the idea to hey the fire sages don't know that we didn't get in we can just pretend that those fire blasts like the residue of the blasts meant that we got in they'll open it up to see if we're inside and boom that's how we get in so that i think was really interesting and important to show how each of these characters are problem solvers they each have their own strengths um they're all really clever in their own ways and finally third this is just a more general writing note but i thought like the very beginning of this episode is so good because the stakes are established incredibly well the blockade at the perimeter of the Fire Nation waters, mm. where we see Aang and Ko, they're flying towards it. And behind them, Zuko and Iroh are sailing towards it. And we know for both of them, going into the Fire Nation is essentially catastrophic. Because at this point in time, Zuko's sort of wanted by Zhao because mm. he sort of suspects that he wasn't fully truthful about his pursuit of the Avatar of being in the know and then we also know that he's banished so he's not supposed to be coming back without the avatar but he's making that risk and the gang are making the risk of going into the one place that wants to capture and kill the avatar more than anything um they both go ahead and do it and they run the blockade it was just so tense and i think it was a really strong opening to the episode it was one of the best scenes i think overall of this entire mm -hmm. season I will also say, this is something I don't, I don't think we mentioned the, when we were talking about the last episode of the Spirit World. There's a moment I like when Aang is in the Spirit World and nobody can see him, and he's on Roku's dragon flying to the Fire Temple so that Roku's dragon can show him where to go. And Iroh's kidnapped, and he sees the dragon over it. So we know that Iroh, as a character, has a very special connection to the Spirit World to the point where he can actually see spirits just flying about. And I think that is an excellent thing to introduce into his character that very is... subtly. That is so beautiful, and we will touch on that towards the end of the season. Because this is also, when we do our next episodes, you'll be able to see how much of this stuff is real, really good foreshadowing. Because they set up so much in this first season that initially, there's just a subtle scene, something that you could completely forget, Iroh seeing the spirit fly overhead. These things come back, and they're so crucial. So I love that you brought that up. One other thing that I wanted to mention about this episode, episode 8, Avatar Roku, is that, as you mentioned, there's one Fire Sage who isn't falling in line with the rest of them and isn't only serving the Fire Lord. And this showcase, uh, showcases to us that just like with Zuko and Iroh, there's a spectrum of bad on the Fire Nation side. right? Not everyone who is a part of the Fire Nation or who wears those Fire Emblems or dresses in red is bad. This Fire Sage helps the gang out. So that's another important lesson that really over time especially in season three gets even more developed of the fact that this is a war going on and there are two sides to it but not everyone who is in the fire nation or is a part of that is an enemy or is bad so that was another crucial thing that i think this episode helped shed some light on did you mention sozin's comet i did not but that's a great thing to that's bring up super important things because that sort of up, reframes the whole season yeah it sets up series. like 
we know what our goal is for the season to get to the northern north pole so that they can train but that really establishes the whole end goal for the series is that sozin's comet is coming if it gets here uh ozai will the fire lord will be able to take over the rest of the world the fire nation will have complete control using that comet and that ang has to be the one to stop him and so the stakes are raised even higher than like it gives us a clear goal of this this moment will define who wins the war it's not like this will be a long thing that's happening over a lot of seasons that it'll be the avatar and everybody versus the fire nation that's going to be like a long war drawn out thing it'll be like this is a moment that is going to happen at the end of the series where it will be ang versus the fire lord and that there will be a battle and that that will decide the fate of the war right and so it sets that that goal it sets that finale up very well done a hundred percent it clarifies the end game as you just mentioned there it also gives mm -hmm. us a timetable where we know previously all these episodes is like well we're trying to get to the north and we're trying to evade capture mm -hmm. but now we know we need to do this stuff very quickly because yeah. at the end of the summer is when the sozin's comic comes so we need to learn all those three elements by the end of that point in time like you need to master all of that so it puts a lot of pressure on these characters for that to happen and so now everything that goes on every detour they take or every step forward is that much more important because we know how it relates to the overall goal of trying to beat ozai before sozin's comet arrives so mm -hmm. yeah another amazing way that this episode is able to reframe the purpose of the season and the series uh in just a few short episodes so really solid writing there so that leads us into what is probably my least favorite episode of the season. Oh, really? Yeah, the waterbending scroll. It's it's between this and another one, and we'll get there. But the waterbending scroll is definitely down low on my list because it's a very... We learn a little bit about the characters and we watch them interact, but it's a very kind of like cut and dry sort of plot. It's like there is, there is something that makes Katara jealous, and Katara has to get over her jealousy. And I feel like... It's just not, I don't know, I just feel like it's not as advanced as some of the other episodes, especially coming right off after the episode with Roku. I just, it's just very much, I remember when I rewatched it recently, when I rewatched the whole series, I remembered every episode in season one, except for this one. Like when I got here, I was like, I don't remember this episode in the slightest. I have no idea what happens. And I, I was disappointed by it. I feel like... It is just sort of a filler episode. No, there's no really big plot advancements. There's no really like big moments in it. It's just Katara is jealous of Aang because Aang is picking it up quicker than her and she has to get over her jealousy and that's about it. And I don't know. It's not my favorite episode. I see. Interesting. So I would disagree with the sentiment that it's a filler episode. I don't know if i mean i'm sure you could classify some of them but i don't really think any of these episodes are filler episodes like any avatar episode since in some way if it's not fully pushing forward the plot it is revealing more about either the world or the character in a meaningful way and i feel like for this one because it does shed some more light on katara and who she is we get to see another side to her one that's a little less flattering than the really empathetic, really determined side that we saw in those earlier episodes. I think for that reason, it is fairly important. We get to see her 
give it more morally ambiguous, right? She's the one that steals the scroll, albeit it's from pirates. So it's permissible, but uh, she does end up stealing that for her own gain in order to share with Aang and help them practice some more waterbending techniques like the water whip. Um, so I feel like that and the way that the waterbending scroll means that we get to see her jealousy, her insecurity over not being at the same level as Aang. It's a really human thing where she was waterbending first, like her only power is doing the waterbending, whereas Aang already has air, he's going to have the other elements, and then already right off the cuff, he's this good at waterbending. Um, it's difficult for her to come to terms with. But then we also see when she does lash out, she immediately apologizes to him. Um, but then she's still still not fully okay with being so far behind in the training. So she sneaks off on her own to practice, and then she's the one that ends up getting spotted by the Fire Nation people that uh, Ray Zuko was able to find out from the pirates, which was an interesting coincidence. Like, they lost the White Lotus tile for the Pie Show game that Iroh has, so they mm -hmm. go into the pirate place to see it and then they hear them talking about the people that stole the scroll so then he essentially tasks those pirates with finding and bringing the gang to him um, and so when they finally do again it's because they were able to spot her practicing with that water bending scroll on the on the water um, and one of the funniest lines i think of this episode was her they were like captured and she's like guys this was all my fault and I can remember it was Sakura Aang who was like, no, it's not. Don't say that. And then Iroh looks at her and is like, no, it kind of is. It's definitely your fault. Yeah. Uh, that I thought was funny. Um, and then, again, just the relationship that it shows between Guitar and Aang. Aang being proficient because he's the Avatar. Um, and he's sort of leaning into that while Katara again, has to see it, has to come to terms with the fact that she's going to be some steps behind him as they go through this training. So in that sense, I can see where it sort of feels less important, especially again, coming off the heels of something as important as that mid season uh, winter solstice thing. But I do, it's just an enjoyable episode. Like for me, it was entertaining and it does give that depth to Katara. So I like it. I don't think it's, I wouldn't call it among the worst of the season, but it's not, not among the best. It was more of a mid. I just wouldn't say it's like super engaging. I do love when Zuko and the pirates are fighting over who gets like the avatar and who gets because the avatar has like a bounty on his head and they're arguing about who gets him and they're fighting each other. And and uh, Iroh says, stop. You, you guys are so busy fighting each other. You haven't noticed that your ship has left you. And and Zuko's like. This isn't time for one of your metaphors, Uncle. And I was like, it's not a metaphor. Your ship's gone. And the ship's going down the river because the gang took it. And then I was like, should it be a metaphor? Everybody in! Are you so busy fighting you cannot see your own ship has set sail? We have no time for your proverbs, Uncle. It's no proverb. Bleeding hog monkeys! <laughs> Hey! That's my boat! Maybe it should be a proverb. Come on, Uncle! 
yeah, it's so good. And then at the end of the episode, it turns out he had the White Lotus tile all along. So perfect. There was no need to go to the pirates or anything like that. It was, I think it was cool. And it also sets up, as we'll talk about later on, the pirates, um, they do end up coming back. Or actually, mm-hmm. I don't know if I made a note about it, but the pirates are established in this one and they do come back in the episodes later down the line. So I do think it was a useful episode. It served its purpose. It did have a purpose. But episode 10, I think, had a much greater purpose, both character-wise mm-hmm. and thematically. This is one of my favorite episodes of the season, for sure. Me too. Um, because we see, in the world building, we get to see some of the resistance to the Fire Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get to see technology like Blasting Jelly, uh, basically their dynamite. Um, but this, I really see as Sokka's episode. And he, at the very beginning, christens himself the leader, right? This is, again, one of those central drives for him is he wants to be the leader. He mentions he's the oldest. He has the best instincts. And so Aang and Katara play along, and they tease him, saying that he's the, like, yeah, <laughs> you're the leader. But they don't really believe it. But throughout this episode, we see Sokka having genuinely good instincts, right? Having those leader-like tendencies. And we meet Jet, who they, the episode is named after. He is the foil to Sokka because he actually is a leader, but he's smooth and well-respected and well-adored by his team. They follow him, and immediately, Aang and Katara take a liking to him, or as Sokka, because he's being a more successful version of what Sokka wants to be, mm-hmm. is jealous. Yes. And later in the episode, this is a really important moment, which is a great scene to showcase um, the character dynamics and show these two opposing philosophies that Jet and Sokka have, Jet wants Sokka to attack this old man, this defenseless old man. And Sokka refuses to do it. Mm-hmm. The only reason, essentially, that Jet wants to do it is because that guy's Fire Nation. So he has that point of view of, oh, this person is Fire Nation. That's the enemy. Anyone wearing red or having a Fire Emblem, that's the enemy. We need mm-hmm. to attack them. Sokka, of course, is able to say, no, I mean, that's crazy. Like, the man could have been bad. Like, he could have been a warrior back in the day. Who knows? But yeah. at this point in time, the man, all we know about him is he's just defenseless. Like, he's an old man. It would be just destroying him. There'd be no fight. And so Sokka refuses. And then he tries to convince Aang and Katara to see that this is what Jet did. And they don't believe him because they think, oh, you're just being jealous. You're making this up. Mm-hmm. When And that's frustrating for Sokka, obviously, because he's the only one who sees through the facade. Yeah, I love uh, Boy Who Cried Wolf situations and shows. It's, right. it's It's always fun to watch. It is, and we see it culminate in Jet's plan to, which is so sadistic, his plan to destroy the dam, which will knock out all the Fire Nation warriors that are occupying the town, but will also kill off all the people in the town. And so Jet also uses Katara and Aang to help feed into um, the reservoir to build up the water so that it'll be able to... uh, overpowered the dam i believe that's what the plan was or they had the mm-hmm. blasting jelly that would end up destroying the dam and then all the water that they put into the reservoir would flow down it um and of course Sokka finds it out and then goes to stop it um and it's just really well done that the whole element because ang and jet like they like i think they ended up ang and Katara finding out what the plan was and then yeah. they tried to stop it but as far as they knew it was too late Sokka was the key that made sure that the civilians in the town were able to get out. And it's another moment of like this kid cartoon being really dark. Like we see mm-hmm. the town getting destroyed. And the implication initially, at least for Aang and Katara, 
is that, oh, they got wiped out. Jed succeeded. But, mm-hmm. of course, that didn't end up happening because Sokka was able to get down there and help those people out with the, the, old, the old man, man who vouched for him. That's such good writing, dude. It's so incredible. He showed mercy, and it was it was amazing. Yeah, I think it's really great when they set up Jet and the Freedom Fighters because they come back a lot. And this is a great way to sort of introduce them as being morally ambiguous characters, Jet especially. And I think it's a really good way to show that even though Jet is not Fire Nation, Jet is not good, there's definitely the implication of like, not just the Fire Nation are bad people. Anyone can be bad in the show. Anyone can be good in the show. Everybody's morally complex and Jet is clearly not a good person. And that will come back to help develop his character later on in the show. And it definitely shows Sokka as as someone who could be a leader. Like this is the first one of the first episodes where you see him taking really strong initiative to like stop something bad from happening and using his moral compass to guide his decisions, which I think is super cool. For sure. Yeah, again, this as you mentioned there, the moral complexity, we're getting to see that binary deconstructed of oh this side is good because it's not fire nation this side is bad because they are fire nation again that gets deconstructed yet again in this episode and it's really important i think to show that these freedom fighters like that's what they call themselves and that's how they're framed to be um they 100 percent were not fighting for freedom like i believe a line in here was Sokka. jet was saying oh how dare you stop me they would have been free Sokka's like, who would have been free? They'd all be dead. Sokka, you fool! We could have freed this valley! Who would be free? Everyone would be dead. You traitor! No, Jet. You became the traitor when you stopped protecting innocent people. So I think that was another really important concept to include in this show and to have these characters deal with is the fact that these supposed freedom fighters who are essentially being terrorists, if they're willing to just flatten a bunch of innocent mm. civilians in order to, to take out some of the fire nation soldiers mm. just because they are working against the same enemy yeah. and not being fire nation doesn't necessarily mean they're allies to our gang and does not mean that as you said they're good people he's not mm. fire nation but he's certainly not good and then also as you mentioned this is another way that this if it was just standalone and Jet and the Freedom Fighters never came back, still think it would be a great solid episode. But again, what these writers do is they're always setting things up in these episodes. So it works completely on its own, but it also establishes these characters to mm-hmm. come back later and play more important roles in the future. So it's just a really solid episode. I think it's definitely top three of my favorites for this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even though Jet is like really crazy in this episode, and he's still really cool. Like his character <laughs> design, his swords... His actions, the way that they perform him, I, I don't know. I, I really like Jet as a character just because he is so cool. Even though he like he does not play a big role until like mid to late season two, it's still he's still super cool. Like I, I really I think I like Jet a lot as a character. He's awesome. He is. I mean, see, he got you. He would enamor you alongside mm-hmm. Aang and Katara. He really would. Now we can lead into what may actually be my least favorite episode of the season. The episode 11, The Great Divide, where they're trying to cross the canyon. This episode is notorious. Like in the Atla community, I think it is the most hated of the episodes. 
which I don't know why. So this will be interesting. I want to hear your perspectives on it, and then I'll get mine. Or I don't think it's that bad of an episode. But go ahead. Talk about what it's doing, what purpose it's, it's trying to serve, and then give your thoughts. It is kind of – it just kind of feels like a, a basic sitcom episode where you have these two characters, Sokka and Katara, who are so – different in many different ways and it like showcases their differences in very explicit manners by sort of personifying their personality traits into these two different tribes that also disagree with each other and it's just creating more and more conflict and putting ang in the center of it as the peacemaker and like it's great to see ang fulfill his role as, as the avatar as the, the the creator of peace and the, the bringing together of, of different people but it's just such a I don't know. I feel like it's a very what's the word I'm looking for? It's sort of on the nose with how like this tribe hates this tribe. Sokka's with this tribe who are the the gross people who eat a bunch of food and and are fight each other and stuff. And then Katara's with the very prim and proper people who are who are all neat and organized. And like the way they set that up with the argument in the beginning about the tent and all that stuff. I just I feel like it's very on the nose. And I really don't like the end. How 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 Aang settles the disagreement. Like it's kind of funny that he just lies just to get them to stop fighting. But it's also very much like it seems more against his nature to lie to solve. Like I get he's still a kid and he's frustrated and he just wants them to be peaceful because what they're arguing about is stupid. And any one of us probably would have lied if we could get away with it just to end the, the fighting and stuff. But I feel like it is sort of a cheat way to get out of it and to for him to do that, which is certainly not his first choice. And we see that it's not his first choice to try and solve the problem. I feel like he just sort of gives up trying to do it his way and just lies and just finishes it and moves on because he's frustrated. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that particular moment, which I'm interested in the fact that you took issue with it. I thought that was interesting because of the fact it revealed so much about Aang, who again, as you said, like being an avatar is being a peacemaker. And so he was in the end, you said frustrated, but I think just practical in understanding that this conflict is not going to be resolved. They're not going to see eye to eye unless he's able to break down these ideas that they had formed, right? These essentially the myths that they had created for themselves about what the other tribe was like. And the wrongs that they had done to them. This is sort of like flashbacks and whatnot to the cycle of violence we see in Last of Us Part Two. Um, like this is their sort of version of I mean, not discussing as that. Certainly not as intense, <laughs> of course. Um, but this is sort of like it's including that same sort of theme. Um where again, they both feel that the other had wronged them and they're unable to look past it. They're still in the mindset of eye for an eye. Um, so there's no way essentially to resolve that conflict unless Aang is able to uh, blow up the perception that these people were wronging each other in the first place or just like take away that bad blood that's baked into their history. And so he chooses to sacrifice honesty uh, in exchange for getting actual peace between them. And so I thought it was a very interesting choice that he made. Like I think the show sort of plays it off as like a joke, like, oh, I lied. Like, they don't really go into the implications of that, but I do think that's interesting that in order to finally create peace, in order to stop 
the continual hurt that's being generated by these two tribes being uh, cutthroat with each other and at odds with each other, he does something that right is not typically what we perceive very moral people to do. He lies, but it does end up ending that conflict. So I believe that was like it's just an interesting element, and I I like that direction they took with it. I also like how you said it was sort of on the nose, which I mean, yes, but I think it works in the way that you see the distinction between the two siblings. And initially, Aang was trying to be the peacemaker between them. But then you see how that blows up and becomes much more serious and more difficult when it's peoples that are, right, different tribes that are uh, having those sort of issues with each other um, and the difficulty that Aang faces in trying to bring peace to them. Um, and it's not always going to happen very easily. And as we see in the end of the episode, sometimes different approaches will need to be taken, such as lying and giving that backstory, that false backstory to them. The one thing I will say is it definitely, like that backstory was sort of contrived. Like I don't know what tribes, because that old dude in the prim and proper tribe, mm -hmm. like he could have been old enough to have been there a hundred years ago whenever this incident happened. So I think that was a little silly that, they were making these like such key core parts of their tribe and their tribe's history. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, I like the intent of the episode. I, I also like just to give a shout out to some of the animation work in here when he was telling the story from the two different perspectives. I thought it was interesting how it was more of a crude animation style for the, the slob warrior people. And then it was more of an elegant, um, sort of style for the, the prim and proper. Um, I just like that because, again, it's a whole story of the different perspectives. Both of them ended up bringing food into the canyon because they believed that the other was already going to do that. And, of course, mm -hmm. like when you have those sort of feelings, right, that's the whole tragedy of the commons and all that. Like once you believe everyone else is doing the bad things, so you go ahead and do it as well. Like that's actually what is causing the issues. Um, so I like that it incorporated that idea as well. And then that guitar and Sokka ended up joining in with that charade. And Aang is like, you people are insufferable. I can't believe you all did that. So for me, I think the Great Divide, I think it's roasted too much. I don't think it should be hit as hard as it as it is hit. It's not, it's just not my favorite, if you ask me. I feel like, I feel like they handle it too much like a joke at the end when Aang sort of just lies and gets out of it. I feel like it is too much of, like, he's just frustrated and he's like, well, there's only one way to end this. I'll just lie and get it over with. And I just feel like that is just, it's not, like, super far out of his character, but it's just far enough to where it would be more of a serious decision for him than just a joke and just move on. I feel like he would, like, maybe be weighing on it a little bit much after but like I'm, I think it's okay that he lied. I just think it was more of a serious choice for him than it was made out to be. He it just seemed like, oh, part of his character now is that he'll lie when he has to, and that's just not what it was afterward. It wasn't what it was before, and so I feel like he was a little bit out of his character. Just laugh it off and move on. Um, I like the design of the the canyon crawlers and like the solution to put the bags of food on them and to ride them up the canyon. I think that's fun. I just, it's just a frustrating episode to watch. It really is to watch these people just be obnoxious towards each other for stupid reasons. 
and I feel like it's just too frustrating sometimes. That's true. I can see that. I can see it. Anyway, we're on to our next episode, episode 12, The Storm. This is an episode that has a lot of backstory to it, which we love to hear. We love to hear details details about our characters. We lear- love to learn about how uh, Aang gets caught in the storm and why he ends up being frozen in ice for 100 years and why Zuko has his scar and all this stuff. It's all It's just a lot of like learning about our two opposing characters is wrapped into one which i think is a good way to do that instead of different episodes for each it's nice to learn about the backstories of our characters kind of all at once because they are kind of similar they're like fish out of water a little bit in their backstory situations you know ang is the avatar and he went after he learns about being the avatar he's very much excluded from a lot of his friends a lot of the activities he's left out a lot because he's the avatar and he feels so alone because of it and Zuko just wants to impress his father, but he is different than all of these Fire Nation generals. He's he's very much uh, juxtaposed to their cruelty. He's very much opposed to what they're trying to do, and they're willing to sac because it was they were willing to sacrifice a battalion of Fire Nation soldiers, and he was against that. And he spoke up at the meeting when he wasn't supposed to, and so his father was upset by that. And so these sort of fish out of water characters are thrust into situations that they don't want to be in and so now Zuko is in the Agni Kai Aang is being forced to be the Avatar when he doesn't want to so Aang runs away Zuko doesn't fight and they kind of pay the price for those actions those choices which I mean maybe right in both situations Aang doesn't want to be the Avatar he's not ready to do it so he runs away and he gets trapped in the ice which preserves him for 100 years Zuko doesn't want to fight his father, which seems to be the right choice, but his father won't let him back down. So he strikes him. He gets the scar. He's banished for life. Brings shame upon his family. Sets up our story. We're just learning a lot about how both of these characters ended up where they were, and I really like learning about that all at once. Yeah, for sure. As you said, I think the the parallel between them is the fact that at that end of the backstory, they're thrust out of their community, and Mm -hmm. they're on their own, essentially, right? Aang becomes the last airbender, and then Zuko becomes the banished prince. So their culture, they are no longer a part of it. They're gone. Uh, and that, I think, is an interesting parallel between those two characters. Some other world-building elements that get introduced in here is, of course, we get to see a lot of the backstory between the the different nations and the cultures that they have there. So we see the Agni Kai. I mean, that is obviously very fundamental. Those honor duels in the Fire Nation. And we see more of how the air nomads really are very monk-like, um, but that there's also childhood bullying or isolation that can happen there, um, which Avatar, or which Aang, of course, felt because he was the Avatar. Um, we also see how the Avatar is verified as being the Avatar, mm-hmm. where they have like these different relics that um, belong to previous Avatars and that Aang was particularly drawn towards those um so that sort of clued them in we also see which i think was interesting here we've seen how the avatar is celebrated in some ways by the common people but in this episode we see how he's also got a lot of resentment directed towards him because of that disappearance and which caused essentially 100 years worth of suffering and war where the fire nation was able to become the dominant imperial force. Um, so the one fisherman that they encounter 
the word of insults um, and looks upon Aang with contempt because of that disappearance. And it's interesting how that the end of the episode in a reversal of how he was initially when he fled and got caught in that storm and they got trapped in the ice because he didn't want to face these responsibilities. He was too young at that point. Couldn't do it. Now, he's essentially still the same age, mm-hmm. right? But now he's accepting that responsibility a bit more. He's going into the storm in order to save Sokka and save that fisherman. Mm-hmm. He's ready to confront this part of his life that was thrust upon him. He didn't necessarily want to ask for and previously didn't know how yet to grapple with it fully. Um, but we see here, I mean, this is him sort of maturing into finally taking on 100% that role of being the Avatar. Mm-hmm. So I think that is really a crucial element yeah. for Aang in this episode. And then for Zuko, as you mentioned earlier on, um, we see that there's a lot of compassion to Zuko that we don't see initially when we're introduced to him. Um, and that is oftentimes overshadowed by this obsession he has with capturing the Avatar at the start of the episode when the storm is coming he decides to press on continue sailing the ship towards the avatar even though the storm is going to overtake them but Mm -hmm. by the end of the episode he chooses not to pursue ang in order to ensure that the crew is safe so they waited out in the eye of the storm which shows again i mean zuko is not fully evil he's not completely hellbent on taking Aang at any Mm -hmm. all costs necessary when people that are important to him like iroh are in danger and it's a toss-up between going after Aang or helping to ensure the safety or protection of the people he loves. He will pick the people that he loves. Mm-hmm. So that's another way that the audience is able to identify with him and sympathize with Zuko, which, of course, is going to be important for his overall arc for the series mm-hmm. and going from villain to protagonist or hero. So We learn a lot about his willingness to care for human life in this episode because you have that parallel between him picking his crew over chasing the avatar with his backstory of him wanting to pick the the soldiers over potentially winning a battle you have that parallel of him choosing human life over success which is something that will continue throughout the rest of the series and develop and grow even more and more 100 percent. and other things like we talked about before but the foreshadowing the setups that they do in ways that are so subtle as you mentioned with iroh and seeing the spear dragon Azula, her first appearance is in this episode. She's Ugh. sitting in the crowd at the Agni Kai and is smiling devilishly when Zuko gets scarred. Uh, and so we, she's not named. She's not referenced. She's not drawn any attention to her, but she's there. And it's incredible that they set that up in episode 12 of season one when she doesn't even become a full-on character until season two. So just the thought that they put into this the planning that they had for it, it shows in how well-constructed it is. Mm-hmm. Now we have episode 13, The Blue Spirit. This is one of the best episodes of the season. I think it's incredible. I think it's awesome. Basically, we have Aang, and he's taking Katara and Sokka, who are sick. He's trying to take care of them, and he learns that he needs to get frozen wood frogs that they're going to suck on until they are not frozen in order to cure their sickness, which is hilarious. And he's out trying to find these frogs when he gets captured by the Fire Nation, Zhao. And he's sort of captive in this big prison, and he can't get out. But then he's saved by 
the blue spirit, who's a mysterious stranger who that wields swords and saves him. And as they're escaping this sort of prison complex, the blue spirit is knocked down and knocked out. And Aang discovers that it's Zuko that saved him. And it's, it's pretty clear that Zuko saved him so that he can be the one to capture the avatar. But nonetheless, Aang still saves Zuko from the wrath of the Yuyan archers and Zhao. The Yuyan archers are elite mercs. They are excellent marksmen. <laughs> incredible. They are very incredible shots. And so it's just interesting parallel of Zuko saving Aang, Aang saving Zuko. And then is, this is the episode where they have that conversation where Aang is like, we could be friends. This is this episode? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. You know what the worst part about being born over a hundred years ago is? I miss all the friends I used to hang out with. Before the war started, I used to always visit my friend Kuzan. The two of us, we get in and out of so much trouble together. He was one of the best friends I ever had. And he was from the Fire Nation, just like you. If we knew each other back then, do you think we could have been friends too? I love that whole dialogue they have in the in the jungle when Zuko's kind of tied up and he's just talking to him and then Zuko tries to get free and Aang runs away. I know it's so it's, it's well done. It's so well done because it speaks to both their characters, of course. I mean, wants to see the good in people. Mm -hmm. um, and even though, I mean, he has seen none of the good in Zuko that we have seen at this point. But he still says that thing where he's like, you know, we could have been friends. Do you think we would be friends if things were different? And Zuko just tries to blast him with a fireball and Hang runs away. <laughs> and then it settles on Zuko's face afterwards. And you see that he's sort of affected by that. Mm -hmm. But he is still, I mean, his mission is to capture the Avatar so that he can return home and reclaim yeah. his honor. And as you mentioned before, that's another really interesting part of this episode, which is the fact that Zuko would rather put his own personal gain, like being able to capture the Avatar and take him home over the Fire Nation cause, which is essentially just to get the Avatar. I mean, he gets captured. That's what the Fire Nation wants. That's what Ozai wants. But Zuko wants to be the one to bring it back so that he is able to benefit from it personally. Um, it's just a very interesting complexity that they weave into these characters here. Uh, and of course, for us, it's good because that means Aang is able to get saved. But it's just an interesting dynamic that they are able to incorporate. I also think this is one of the highlights of this season. I remember, I don't know how clear it was, but like I watched it when it was coming out. Right, watched the mm -hmm. whole series when it came out, and then would catch reruns for a couple years after that. But for the, before I started watching this again, it was like eight years since I had seen it. Like yeah. I actually sat down and watched through the stuff. But this is one of those episodes that are fully burned into my mind. Like I remembered so much of it, mm -hmm. even through the eight-year gap, because it's just that good. Like that reveal, the way that it speaks to both Zuko and Aang's characters, Aang mm -hmm. continuously saving the rescuer. Before he knew it was Zuko and then after he knew it was Zuko and then sitting with Zuko when he was asleep and then when he finally wakes up asking that question. It's just so good. Also, this episode is another great example of how the show can blend that more serious action-related stuff 
to just the funny comedy of it. The mm. Sock and Katara being high off their rocker, talking like being sick and then trying to talk to Momo and you see from Momo's perspective what it sounds like, the gibberish that they're saying. They're telling Momo to get the frozen frogs and Momo <laughs> just keeps bringing back every other thing possible other it's than the frozen so frogs. good. It's so No, fun. they're asking him to get water and he's not bringing back water. Yeah. It's incredible. It's so good. I love this episode. I love seeing Zhao embrace being the full villain of the season and talking about how fire is a superior element and having that full fire fascism deal and how he's fully committed to the fire nation taking over the world and how he wants to see that through. So you see that kind of parallel with uh, Zuko, whose entire mission is just to get the Avatar. He has no talking of fire superiority or the attempt of the fire nation to take over this world. He's, he's fully engaged in just capturing the Avatar. That's like his mission. And right. he's willing to stand up against the Fire Nation in itself in order to complete this mission. He's willing to break into a Fire Nation uh, camp in order to free the Avatar, in order to capture the Avatar. It's very interesting to see how committed he is to his specific goal. I know. And then seeing in the end, like as the series continues to progress, where he'll eventually work with Aang in order to prevent the fire fascism from spreading in order to stop his father Ozai. Like we're seeing an inkling of that here that again, like you said, Zhao, he certainly got the pride and ego element to what Zhao's doing. Like there's motivation in that, but he also does buy into the whole nationalistic part of fire nation should be on top of the world. Zuko mm -hmm. doesn't have that in the side. It's like, we don't see that at all. Um, and that's part of what is able to allow that change that he does go through to occur. So mm -hmm. it's just so fascinating, this episode and the way it subtly yeah. sets things up for the future, but then also in the moment is able to capitalize on these character revelations that are so important and so worthwhile. Mm -hmm. In episode 14, The Fortune Teller, we have, this is, I think, probably a sort of a mid-tier episode. I think this it's definitely entertaining. Lower end. Oh, you have a lower end. Not, not a big fan of the fortune teller. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's cute in some aspects. Like, I think the whole ordeal with them doing the fortune telling um, is pretty fascinating. Like, Aang, again, this is, for a while, it's been on the back burner, Aang's um, liking of Katara. But then they sort of renew it here where he's trying to get his fortune read so that it'll say that he's going to end up marrying Katara. Um, and I do think it's funny that a lot of the episode features Aang completely being unaware of and then rejecting the girl that's in love with him, that like is fully enamored with him, um, just showing the unrequited love that's sort of going back and forth mm -hmm. here. Um, and I do think every element, like again, the comedy in this episode in particular is really great with Sokka <laughs> dealing with all the people that are believing in fortune telling and he believes it's complete nonsense. He thinks he's the only sane one. Mm -hmm. And the whole point where the one dude, the civilian's like, can your science explain rain? And he's like, yes, it can. It can. <laughs> like, I think all of that stuff's good. Um, it's just overall in comparison to some of these other episodes, it's not as strong in terms of character. Cause this one mm -hmm. is focusing on that, like more like nothing deep and, to the core of these characters is being explored. It's just about sort of their relationships to each other, like Aang wanting Katara, Katara having the first realization that, oh, Aang is a powerful bender 
And my fortune was that I will end up with a powerful bender. So she finally notices Aang as a potential love interest. But again, implications for these characters, who they are, their arcs, and the overall world itself isn't isn't too dramatic. So that's why I think, again, in comparison to episodes like The Blue Spirit um, or The Winter Solstice things, it's not as strong in that sense. So in comparison, it feels like it's the estimation of it is lesser. Yeah, I think I just like the end of the episode when... They have that volcano that's about to explode and they're trying to convince the people to get out before the volcano explodes. And the the lady is like there. She predicted that there would be no explosion this year. Like it will be fine. And they have to go in and have to stop the explosion. And they're like, you see, it was going to explode. Your fortune was wrong. And the fortune teller is like, but it didn't explode. <laughs> we were fine. I told you the fortune was correct. I think that's funny. Yeah. That was really good. I mean, the comedy top tier on that episode. But the rest of it, I can see why that'd be more the mid-tier or lower tier. Yeah. All right, episode 15, Bato of the Water Tribe. In terms of world building, we get some stuff. We get to see more of the interesting animals, like that mole-like creature. I don't know if it had an actual name. I can't remember it. But it's the one that is able to sniff things, like essentially like a tracking dog. Mm-hmm. Um we also see more of the water tribe culture because we see Bato, one of the warriors of Katara and Sokka's tribe. Um, they come across him. And so we get to see some of the food that they eat, stewed sea prune, which is not something that Aang enjoys. Mm-hmm. And then we also see a rite of passage that the water tribe has, which is ice dodging. Since they don't have any ice, they do more rock dodging. But we yes. get to see Sokka do that and try to showcase his leadership skills and he's coordinating Aang and uh, Katara in order to sail through those rocks and so we see again his problem solving the fact that he is does have good instincts and is really a leader Um, and then the other part of this episode that is most significant is the fact that Aang he feels sort of left out when Sokka and Katara are reminiscing with Bato but more importantly he feels afraid that because they're talking so much about their dad and that the map is going to be coming to them soon he thinks that Katara and Sokka are going to leave him in order to go reunite with their dad and of course I mean Aang's entire people have been eradicated the only family he has left is his found family in Sokka and Katara Mm -hmm. so the thought that they may not leave him really scares him and so he makes a very human mistake where he tries to prevent that by taking the map that the messenger brings and hiding it, not revealing to Sokka and Katara that it came so that he could stave off their the potential that they may leave him um, and so that he can keep them close. And of course, when that ends up getting revealed, he does end up coming around and when he gets the mark of the trusted from the ice dodging that they do, um, yeah. he is like, man, I can't. I'm a fraud. I can't be the mark of the trusted. So he fesses up and reveals what he did. And of course, Sokka and Katara are not very fond of that. And they do end up leaving him, uh, at least temporarily, to go search for their father. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's just such an interesting character moment to have Aang have this fear. He does something that he shouldn't have done, but it's mm-hmm. you, know, you can see like where he's coming from. It's 
it makes sense the order of events that he does here. Um, but he feels too guilty about it and does end up fessing up and ends up because of the fact like his action mm-hmm. is what made them end up leaving. Had yeah. he not done that, they of course wouldn't have left. Um, but it was him going out of his way to try to prevent them from having that knowledge to make that choice, which ended up causing them to make the choice that he didn't want most of all. So mm-hmm. I just think that was a really interesting way to look at the dynamic between the gang um, and how Aang really feels about them. Yeah, this is what I wish they had done with the Great Divide episode is he has this, like I understand they don't have enough time to do it in the Great Divide episode and they just let him lie and they move on as a joke and whatever. But in this episode, he actually has like a, a moral, morally complex situation where he he wants to lie, but he knows he shouldn't. And he chooses to do so anyway, and he feels pain from that decision because even though he's the Avatar, he's still just a human being, and he's still just making decisions based on those human needs of wanting a family and wanting people around him, at, at the the sacrifice of the the, the sacrifice of their needs, and so he, it it weighs on him in a guilty way rather than a joke. And I like the the payoff of you know they leave him. Yeah, albeit temporarily, and he has to deal with the fact that he caused that rather than something what he was trying to prevent causing that. He has that sort of that irony that is built into that decision. For sure. And the one other element of this episode that I wanted to draw attention to is what draws Sokka and Katara back to Aang. It's Bato instilling this lesson. Like they are in the woods and then they hear a wolf crying out, wailing. Uh, and Vato's like, that is a wolf that is separated from the pack. Like, I can clearly distinguish that noise. And it's because that wolf is in pain. And so Sokka completely understands how that wolf feels, right? All of the warriors in his tribe left. So he felt like he was the only one there left. And that's exactly how Aang feels. That's how he feels currently because his tribe did leave him. Aang and Katara, or Sokka and Katara are gone. And that's the feeling that Aang was afraid of having, which is why he hid the map from them. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a great way to show that certainly what Aang did was wrong, but it didn't happen for no reason. It was out of a fear Aang had, and it's one that Sokka knows about because he felt the same way. He's felt the same way before. And so mm-hmm. it it speaks to that empathy that people can have for each other in order to understand um, the plights that they are having and why they do some of the actions that they do that may end up causing some hurt to other people. And so that is what allows Sokka to forgive Aang and return to him with Katara in order to help save them against Zuko, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that particular moment where we see the Sokka realizing, uh, and again, not excusing what Aang did or anything, but understanding why that happened and realizing that he has felt the same way before and that in a similar situation he could have done that same action uh, i think it was really important and really amazing moment that the writers included in here so that's another thing that i think elevates this episode Mm -hmm. i i really like i'm always on the jokes in these episodes because that's what it stands (laughs) out they're so good they're so good all the time but I love when Iroh is just flirting with the woman with the the mole wolf kind of thing. And and they all get stabbed by it on accident, so they're all paralyzed. 
and she, he falls onto her paralyzed and he goes oh no <laughs> and he's like pretending to be upset and he just like snuggles up against her because they can't move oh it's so funny i love i love iroh he's amazing he's amazing our next episode is episode 16 it is the deserter we get our first taste of firebending as a form of something to be taught outside of iroh and zuko when they find this firebending instructor who has abandoned the fire nation because he's fed up with it and he after much persistence he agrees to teach Aang firebending which is not advised because he should be learning it in the order of the way the avatar transitions so he should learn water first and then earth and then fire and he's only learned a bit of water he hasn't mastered it yet he hasn't learned any of earth but he wants to skip to fire because he's worried about not knowing it enough when so comment happens and so it's this sort of feeling of like trying to jump the gun that is sort of the theme of the episode he's trying to skip ahead and he's trying to learn everything as quickly as possible rather than taking his time with it because he feels rushed and because he's so reckless about the way he's training he becomes reckless in the way he's using the firebending and he ends up burning katara and that really impacts him and how he learns firebending all the way in season three which is important because when he learns waterbending he's learning it throughout this, this entire season we'll talk more about it in the last two episodes when he learns it the most the last two or three episodes He's getting it kind of easily and there's not a lot of conflict with his learning, but they need to, and then there's natural conflict that they write in with earthbending because earthbending is the hardest for airbenders to learn because it's the exact opposite element to air. So it becomes, it's naturally conflicted in the way they build those rules. And this is how they, they write in a conflict with how he learns firebending is he has this traumatic experience where he burns guitar and he swears off firebending forever. He says, I'll, I'll never firebend again because I don't want to hurt anybody I love because fire is so destructive. And he has to learn that lesson all the way later in season three, that that fire is not destructive. Fire is life. Fire gives life. And he, he doesn't learn that all the way until season three. And we'll get there in part three of this special. But for now, it is a very like, traumatizing experience for him. It's very impactful in his development, and it's very important for later in the series. And that's why this episode is so important. Yeah, we also learn a we also learn a lot about how firebending works, a lot about how one would firebend. It's all about breath control. It's all about proper technique, and it's all about just trying to control it as as strongly as possible because it is it can be destructive, and it's all about keeping it in and keeping it under your control, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and as you brought up, a very crucial episode for Ang and firebending in the long run. But this episode also gives us a lot, as you said, that glimpse of how firebending works and then also the philosophy behind it. Because at this point in time, again, we've only seen firebending through the lens of the destruction that it brings. And Zhang Zhang is sort of the one that is a representative of that mindset that fire can only bring pain. He calls it a burning curse. It is destructive. That is what fire is. And certainly in this world, as it is right now, that's what fire has become um and mm -hmm. of course in season three we get to see that it was not always that way but i think it's interesting that they make a parallel between Zhang Zhang having that that philosophy around fire which is one that ang of course because he hurt somebody else with that so now he believes in that um and then also 
we see through Zhao that that really fire really can empower the people that want to bring destruction, right? Zhao was an apprentice of Zhang Zhang, and the only reason he wanted to learn fire was in order to cause destruction. And that's so interesting, not just for Zhao's character, but again, for the philosophy of fire bending, how mm. it really can attract some of these people that want to use that rage, want to use their anger and utilize fire, um, not for any good purposes, but purely for the great amount of destruction that it can cause much more than any other uh, element. Because as you mentioned, if you can't control that flame, it's going to end up burning down a forest somewhere else, right? You need to have control over it. Mm. And it's something that we see Aang struggle with. He loses control. And we see Zhao completely unrestrained in his usage of firebending, which ends up biting him in the butt because he ends up destroying all of his ships, essentially. So Aang is able to leverage that revelation that like Zhao is the type of person that uses fire because of how much destruction it can cause without any mind paying any mind to the control that is needed to tend to fire um so ang is able to win over zhao because of that but as you mentioned ang swears off firebending for so long and that's so interesting that it did that because it showcased as you mentioned it gave a, a conflict for him to overcome with fire that wouldn't really come around again until the third season so again it's another first season episode that is clearly setting up and having implications for something that comes way later down the line. So it's mm -hmm. a lot of great stuff here. Um, a really solid episode for everything that it's doing uh, and all the setups that it brings and the character moments. I mean, seeing Katara get hurt and seeing Aang's complete guilt and shame over hurting Katara is so rough. Mm -hmm. And Katara, I mean, initially she's hurt, right? Of course, but then immediately she's the one who is trying to let Aang know, like, oh, I'm okay. Like, don't worry about it too much. She's that very forgiving personality. Um, she's trying to help Aang get over it, but of course he can't. We also see, I don't know if you mentioned this, we also see that waterbending allows for more than just manipulating water. There's also healing abilities that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So Katara is able to heal herself, um, and that brings us a new... Thing in this magic system something we haven't come across before so a really important episode for many different reasons and that's why what would you where would you consider this top tier but like where do you think is top three of your episodes from the season though no. it's definitely like better than average yeah i think it's definitely in the upper echelon yeah. i don't know if i would consider it top three but this mm -hmm. is like particularly that moment where he did burn her was yeah. one of those things that, again, like I, the exact frames of it were burned in my brain. Yeah, because he's so happy because he's dancing in the fire and he's so happy that he can do it and he's so happy that he's powerful. And then he has that moment where he burns guitar and it all just like fades away from him. Like you could just see it drop and he's like, oh my God, I have done something so horrible. So I wasn't even paying attention and it just happened. And it's just such a traumatic thing for him to do to cause someone that he loves so much, so much pain. For sure. All right. Episode 17, Northern Air Temple. This is one of the lower episodes for me, which is weird because mm -hmm. in theory, I like it. I like what it's doing. I like what it's trying to do in both the thematic ways and the character development. But for whatever reason, the execution of it just 
sort of, I don't know, gets on my nerves almost. Um, the world building that we see here, like we see more of the steampunk tech um, that is included here. We get to see more of the culture uh, that's left behind, like the artifacts of the air nomads. We also get to see more of how the Fire Nation is currently going through an industrial revolution and why that's given them such an edge over these other nations. Mm. And that, I think, is interesting stuff. And the character building with Aang specifically, like that's what I like the most about this episode, where initially he's very unhappy with how he sees his temple, right? What's left of his people being desecrated by these people, these refugees that have been forced up to this place by the Fire Nation. He's really upset, as I'm sure anyone would be, that Tio's dad is making weaponry for the Fire Nation. Like That's how they're able to make sure that they're not going to get attacked by the Fire Nation. Um, so he has to struggle with that, but then realizes that they're good people here. And when they help them fight back against the Fire Nation that comes after them, he ultimately does give them his blessing to use the temple and use it as their home um, since, I mean, otherwise they would just sit there collecting dust. At least this way it's getting put to good use. So I like that he goes through that uh, sort of development because it is a very initial human reaction to be like, this is terrible. Look at what they're doing to all of what was created by my people. Um, <laughs> like the one part where he was going to create a bathhouse in one of the like sacred places of the temple. Um, it was interesting to see that that reaction from Aang, but then towards the end, he's able to to let go of that that frustration and see that ultimately it would make, it would serve no purpose to not have them use this as their home, which they've been mm -hmm. using as their home for the while. Um, so I like that part, and I do like how Sokka is able to demonstrate a lot of his strategic thinking here. The man essentially like invents hot air balloons Amazing. by coming up with the lids. Who knew that it was going to be that simple? Sokka comes through and says, you know what? Put a lid on it so that you can regulate when the air is coming Put a lid on through it. or not. So <laughs> that I think is just hilarious. Sokka straight up invents hot air balloons. Um, but then we get to see that technological development and how that plays into the eventual battle. And then he ends up coming up with the idea to use the, the fuel source for the hot air balloon and combine that with the natural gas that's leaking out around the mountain and have that be a bomb to stop the invasion force of the Fire Nation. So I thought the way that it showed, again, Sokka really does have these solid tactical instincts. The rest of the episode, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. It's one of the things that just didn't connect. I understand. I, I understand. To me, it was... It's a mostly forgettable episode. I remember the Fire Nation coming and fighting off the Fire Nation. I remember uh, all that. And I just, I don't know. I get it. I understand what they're doing. I guess, yeah, it's not my favorite episode either. I, I like the idea of seeing the technological advancement that the Fire Nation is having. And I like seeing that they are so much more advanced than their enemies like the earth kingdom and the water tribes because they have these technological advancements they have these ships they have these tanks they have these hot air balloons now they have all these things that they have to fight against them they have so much technology and i don't know i guess it's just not my favorite either so if Sokka 
let's clarify something. Asaka invents hot air balloons. And then in the finale of the series, when the Fire Nation is using hot air balloons to destroy <laughs> the Earth Kingdom. You heard that right. If Sokka hadn't come up it's with the lids, they well, would never have been able to do it. We see at the end of the episode, and this is one of like why, again, I don't think any of the episodes of Avatar are filler because they all, either in character or in plot or in world building, serve some sort of function. At the end of this episode, we see the fire nation people come across that hot air balloon mm-hmm. and they're like oh interesting so you see that there he had said something about like even in defeat the next step toward victory is taken or something along those lines where they lost this battle but now because they have that technology they're going to be able to scale it up make it into yeah. those massive uh worship zeppelin things mm-hmm. um and so it connects even later down the line so that's why again like i see it's a it's a useful episode it's needed um, but yes, Sokka absolutely caused the worship hot air balloon fiasco. Incredible. Incredible. I think it's always fun to see how the Fire Nation develops its technology. Because you see the Earth Kingdom, they base it a lot around their building, their ability to build with Earth and all of that stuff. It's very rigid structures and whatnot. And then the Fire Nation, it's all just coal and like feet, like these industrial revolution type powered vehicles it's you've got in the second season you have that big tunneler thing that's trying to tunnel through bossing say you have all the hot air balloons all the tanks all the big ships they have all these massive vehicles that they're using to overpower the other people it's still rooted in this like rough uh metallic like fire bending principle of of like using power to push forward which i think is cool to see how that's incorporated in but then you have the people who are inventing this technology they're they're doing it because they're fascinated by it it's more of a fascination rather than the 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 desire to create weapons of war it's more about the curiosity of what they can do they spent so long wondering whether they could do it (laughs) they'd stop to ask themselves whether they should do it they could have just done hot air balloon tours around the different landmarks of the world, but instead they used it for weapons of war. It's truly tragic. Truly. Now we go to episode 18, the waterbending master. Finally, the culmination of the entire goal of this season to get to the North Pole is finally reached. They get there. They are initially, they initially they are thought of as intruders, but are eventually welcomed in with open arms they have a big banquet hall where they meet the chief and the chief's daughter princess yue saga has like a very strong infatuation with which is a good uh side arc to this episode that sets up the next two episodes this is the second time we've seen saga really like fall in love with the character because he he had a big crush on suki when he met her all the way back in episode four and now at the end he has a big crush on yue and he really starts to like her and you can kind of see where she would like him but she refuses to be connected to him in a mysterious way that sets up the next two episodes and we'll get there. But the main plot is that Aang and Katara are looking for a master and they are told that Master Paku is the best waterbending fighter teacher that exists. He is the man to do the job. But he refuses to train Katara because she's a girl and boys learn waterbending for destruction or defense like as fighting. And girls learn waterbending to heal and to heal only. 
which is completely against everything that Katara believes in. She thinks it's ridiculous. She thinks it's stupid. It's a lesson that Sokka has already learned all the way in episode four. It is a lesson that the entire Northern tribe should learn. And so it becomes this great point of contention with her. You, you can see her get really, really frustrated, which is a good kind of plot point for a character that she's so like, she's so individual minded with her ideals that even against tradition, she will fight for what she believes is right. And you have Aang, another good plot point for him is that he's willing to train her after dark when no one's looking so that she can still learn how to use waterbending without Paku knowing, even though he eventually finds out. So you know that Aang is the kind of person who will also break tradition in order to help his friends and to do what he thinks is right. But Paku is not that kind of guy. And he gets really mad that Aang is teaching Katara these lessons and he refuses to train Aang at all. And so when they approach the chief about this and they're like, you know, Aang has to learn how to waterbend so he can fight the Fire Lord. The chief says that you should swallow your pride and apologize to Paku. And Katara says no. And she challenges Paku to a, a duel, a waterbending battle, because she's so stubbornly involved in her ideas against tradition that she's willing to essentially kill like she goes for the throat in that battle she really there is a shot where that people have pointed out where she throws discs ice discs at paku and one of them lands just above his neck and he looks at it and the, the face the expression he's making is oh she's actually trying to kill me here like he he registers that that's what's happening and they're having this fight and eventually he sees her necklace and he recognizes it as the the necklace that he had proposed to his love interest with. And it turns out his, his, the great love of his life was Katara and Sokka's grandmother. And he realizes that the reason that she left was because of his, his unwillingness to abandon tradition and that he's so stubborn in his ways that he won't leave it. And so he realizes that he just lost everything because of that stubbornness and he, he melts away because of it. And he, finally accepts to train Katara as well as Aang. And it's a really it's a really cool episode where you have that sort of patriarchal society and these people who are so stubborn with their uh, traditionalism that they are unwilling to accept any kind of change and it requires a very strong emotional reaction as opposed to any sort of physical like no matter what Katara did with how strong she showed off her bending, there was no way Paku was going to budge until he saw that necklace, it, it was all about that emotional click in his brain that changed his mind and his thinking, not as opposed to, well, in addition to Katara's skill. But it was that it was that necklace that he saw and that realization of why he's wrong that really changed his mind. Right. This is my necklace. No, it's not. It's mine. Give it back. I made this 60 years ago for the love of my life. For Kama. My grand-grand was supposed to marry you? I carved this necklace for your grandmother when we got engaged. I thought we would have a long, happy life together. I loved her. But she didn't love you, did she? It was an arranged marriage. Grand-grand wouldn't let your tribe's stupid customs run her life. That's why she left. It must have taken a lot of courage. Yeah, I think... I mean, it's a really solid episode in the fact that Paku is only, as you said, only changes because of that revelation of 
oh, this is why the person I was betrothed to left and went to the Southern Wander tribe is because of these same sort of rigid uh, social norms that are making me not allow Katara to train any amount of waterbending that's not healing. So that, I think, was a great reveal that they did there. I'm sure as a kid when I was watching that, my mind was blown. In this rewatching it recently, I was able to pick up on that and see it coming, but mm-hmm. it was still, I think, a really great way to to show that there are these different cultures here and that Katara, as you said, very principled, very strong-willed, she she didn't let Aang not train with Paku for her sake because Aang was also, he was like, yo, Paku, I'm not going to train with you if you don't let her train as well. And then Paku's like, okay, then you're not training with me. And Katara was able to realize, okay, in the grand scheme of things, Aang needs to get taught. So she encourages Aang to no train under him. Um, and then Aang later, of course, is secretly teaching Katara mm-hmm. in order to make sure that she's still able to get that practice in and to learn. Um, but Katara ultimately, as you said, was so fed up with it that she was willing to to go ahead and do that duel uh, to show that this is stupid. Not letting her drain is absolutely foolish. Um, it's antiquated and shouldn't be shouldn't be the way they do things anymore. And that betrothal necklace, I mean, it's just a great reveal. And it showed like that one cultural element, like that just necklace, which was just something that Katara had as part of her character, um, how that became so important to the story with it, her losing it in the imprisoned episode. And then that being how they use the mole wolf thing in order to track the gang and get back Mm -hmm. to her. Um, And then Aang is able to give it back to Katara. And that's another little show of affection between them. And then here we see it all culminates in the fact that, oh, this is essentially a wedding ring. I mean, that's what the necklace is for. And it is able to change Paku's mind and will end up, as we see in the next few episodes, it'll sort of shift the culture as a whole. So Mm -hmm. I think for all the reasons you mentioned, it's a really solid episode um, for what it does with the characters and also the glimpse it gives us into the Northern Wander Tribe. Because again, we started out in the Southern Wander Tribe and that Mm -hmm. was very distinct from the fortress, the like massive city that we see uh, in the Northern, in the North Pole. Mm -hmm. So yeah, great episode. There's also the subplot that happens with Zhao and Zuko, where Zhao hires the pirates to just blow up Zuko's ship. And basically, he's trying to get Zuko killed. And Zuko essentially goes along with it. He pretends like he's dead. And Iroh uh, accepts being one of, now Admiral Zhao, because he's an admiral at this point, he accepts being one of Zhao's generals during the Siege of the North, which is what the next two episodes are. And Zuko, but it's all a plot to get Zuko on the ship, pretending to be a common soldier so that Zuko can undermine Zhao and be the first one to take the Avatar. And it's just that paralleled with Katara's unwillingness to stand down against Paku. It's like that theme of determination in the face of this oncoming adversity of like, you have a goal and this individual is keeping you from getting to that goal and you will not stop until you get there. 
no matter what. And it's that sort of parallel between the two that I love. For sure. All right, now let's talk about the season finale, the two-parter, episode 19, season north, part one. Really important for a lot of the world building as the other winter, winter solstice two-parter was. We learned that waterbenders draw their power from the moon while the firebenders from the sun. And uh, the lore here is that the moon was the first waterbender, so it's pushing and pulling the tides. And so the waterbenders watch that. Thank you, Dylan. You finally caught it <laughs> in the script. I wrote sun as soon <laughs> to rhyme with the moon, I guess. I don't know. Man. <laughs> what in the world? Anyway, so the moon is the first waterbender. And the first human waterbenders, right, they were watching that, and that's how they were able to pick up on it, uh, was the flow of the tides and the pushing and pulling that the moon uh, was acting upon those mm. ocean waters. And we also learned that the moon and the ocean are the two most critical spirits in the uh, culture for the water tribe. They keep each other in balance. Uh, it's the key element of their culture and then the spiritual side that they have. I love the decision to make the moon be the first waterbender because there's so many different ways, the other ways they could have done that because in all the other bending powers you know it's a creature the dragons were the first firebenders the sky bisons were the first airbenders the moles were the first earthbenders but here they kind of like decided to base it on real scientific principles that the moon pulls the tides so the moon is the first real first waterbender instead of creating sort of a mythical creature that maybe was uh an ocean dweller that they could have been basing it on I like that, and I love what they do with the moon and the ocean being like yin and yang, and what they do with the koi fish as a visual representation when they're describing how the moon and the ocean work together to create that balance, and you can see the fish circling each other, and they slowly combine and create the yin-yang symbol. It's such a... Just the, the visual imagery of that is just very impactful in how you understand that concept of the moon and the ocean working together in waterbending. Um, yeah, 100%. Um, so yeah, a lot of great world building there, getting better glimpses at the magic system and the lore uh, that undergirds it. And then we also, for character stuff, we see in action, Aang is, he's finally ready to be a pivotal part of a battle against the Fire Nation because of course he wasn't there at the Air Temple when it was attacked. Not that he would have been able to do much to change it, but he's always, I think, carried a bit of guilt with that. So now he's able to be a crucial part of this battle in the Siege of the North. But when he goes and cleans house on one of the uh, the ships, the Fire Navy vessels that are attacking, he absolutely crushes it pretty much solo. And then he sees an absolute fleet of them coming right behind that ship. So he's sort of demoralized at that moment because it's such an overwhelming force that is invading. So he wants to go to the spirit world. In order to seek guidance, um, that's like when he returned, he was talking mm -hmm. with UA and Katara about that. And so UA is able to bring him to the spirit oasis, which is the one place in the northern, in the North Pole where grass and foliage exists. And it's warm because all the energy is sort of being concentrated there. Um, and so he's able to cross over there. As a side plot, Sokka and UA spend more time together. They go up on Appa. And he and she are about to kiss, but they stop themselves. He stops himself. 
good for Saka, not a home wrecker, but he is still infatuated with the UA uh, and is very saddened by the fact that she breaks it off with him. She says that, you know, she may not love her fiance, the person she's betrothed to, but she loves her people. And this arranged marriage, it's a duty that she has to carry out. Um, and it's interesting how that's sort of, because this is sort of, again, tying to, uh, at least for us, certainly an American antiquated way of doing things, right? There's traditional norms of an arranged marriage where neither really has a choice. It's like the choice of the parents to do it. Um, and we see in that previous episode, the traditional norm broken down where women aren't allowed to do a certain type of water bending. Um, and that changes, but here, this principle of that arranged marriage and her going along with it because it's a duty that she has to carry out for her people. Mm -hmm. We'll see in this next episode how that sort of philosophy follows through um, and doesn't really change, at least not with UA. Um, so that, I think, is an interesting part of this episode. Katara uh, is there at the Spirit Oasis with UA as he is crossing over, Aang is crossing over, and then Zuko shows up. And I want to rewind a bit to one of the best parts of this series, certainly mm -hmm. of this episode. It's this talk between Iroh and Zuko as Iroh sees Zuko off when it's nightfall uh, because they stopped the siege since the sun went down. Now the waterbenders are more powerful, but they're able to use this opportunity. They're able to use the night as cover for Zuko to go in into the... Uh, the city and capture Aang. Mm -hmm. And as he's about to do this, Iroh says that his son, ever since his son had died, and he's like working up to something, Zuko already knows what Iroh is about to say. And so he goes, you don't have to say this. But Iroh still chooses to go ahead and say the line that he sees Zuko as his own. And I absolutely love this moment because it shows... Iroh, who's so wise, so mature, he doesn't see this emotional vulnerability as any sort of weakness in a way that Zuko might, because of course he's certainly in a culture where strength is, like that is one of the highest assets you can have. Um, and so that's probably, for Zuko, something that he doesn't do a lot of showing any of that emotion. But Iroh knows, he is aware that showing that emotion does not mean that he's any less strong than previously. So he goes ahead and lets Zuko know that he sees him as family. He sees him as his own son. And Zuko goes, I know. And it's so beautiful, this connection between the two, and Iroh's dedication to Zuko and true care for him. Mm -hmm. You just love to see it. It's beautiful. Truly Absolutely is. beautiful. And that, sets, that whole episode sets up the actual big bad finale of season one, episode 20. Siege of the North, part two. Siege of the North. Siege, Siege of, the, of North. the North. So right. at this point, it is it is daylight at this point, yes. I get I get the two blurred because it is all just one big story to me. Yeah. So, so I, I don't, it's here, hard to see where the line is drawn. Yeah, the line where it's drawn is the sun comes up during Zuko and Katara's battle. Like yes. this shows how skilled Katara is. During the nighttime, she beats Zuko. But then once the sun rises, Zuko, he drops a banger line too. He says something like, I rise with the sun. And then he wrecks Katara and then steals Aang. And I think that's so interesting how it's sort of a culmination of 
what initially was the conflict and the obstacle that uh, Aang was facing was Zuko chasing him. And of course, we had in Zhao's introduction, we got a bigger bad in Sozin's Comet. When that was introduced, we got an overarching series goal. But the initial dynamic was Zuko chasing Aang. And that comes to pass here when Zuko finally mm. captures Aang and is running off on the cliffside. And that's where the episode ends is Katara sitting at the Spirit Oasis. Sanka and Yue come up and are like, what happened? And Katara's like, I failed. He got him. And then you see Zuko dragging Aang through the snowy cliffside as the blizzard's about to start. And boom, that's the cliffhanger, which I think is so good. Zuko finally captured Aang. And that's where we leave off right before the true season finale. All right. And now in this episode, we learn more about the lore of the moon spirit and the ocean spirit, how they were ancient spirits who crossed into the mortal world long ago. And they are now these fish. And so these <laughs> fish are... Ex- <laughs> they're fish. They should have used that line delivery in the show. <laughs> they said their mortal form is fish. They're just swimming around in circles. And they are the spirits of the moon and the ocean. And that sets up Zhao coming in sneaking in and he just stabs the moon fish and is like i am the moon slayer i am the invincible i am Zhao, the god <laughs> and so all of the waterbenders lose all of their powers it seems like it is the end the end all for the water tribes it seems like the fire nation is going to wipe them out and ang is off busy in the spirit world dealing with the scariest spirit i think in the show the face dealer. I think the face dealer is pretty darn scary. I mean, he screws over which past after the the water bending avatar that is before Kiyoshi. He's screwed over by the face dealer. And ooh, it is a scary looking thing. It is like like adult scary, not even just child scary. But he's dealing with the the what is he doing? What is he trying to do with the face dealer? He's trying to, well, because the face dealer is the only other ancient spirit alongside the moon spirit and ocean spirit. So he knows who the moon spirit and ocean spirit are, like what they're doing, where they are now. So mm-hmm. Aang has to go to the face dealer to be like, yo, where are they at? And the face dealer, while trying to make Aang show any emotion so that he can steal his face, he reveals that whole, which you gave at the top, the lore of the moon spirit and ocean spirit, yes. how they are now... Like they balance each other out, good, evil, light, dark, yin, yang, and then boom, Aang realizes, oh snap, the fish, the koi fish, that fish. were balancing each other out and circling each other in the yin yang pattern. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we learn after the fish is killed by Zhao and the waterbenders lose their power, we learn the truth of Yue about her backstory, how she was born not crying and they thought she was going to die. And they put her in the pond with the fish and begged the moon spirit to save her. And so part of the moon spirit was given to her so that she would live. And so she has the, a bit of the moon spirit within her. And with the moon spirit dead as the fish, she has to take over. And she, I guess, just turns into a fish. Yes, which turns into the moon. And yes. the moon comes back. And then the, and then Aang comes back and he escapes from Zuko. And he is now has the power to turn into the big fish Godzilla, who is an avatar for the ocean spirit, and he's able to wreck people up and just kill everybody. And he kills Zhao, 
in a great scene and he just he's just killing everybody he's this giant fish god i love that scene when he kills Zhao because Zhao <laughs> is being grabbed off the thing and zuko tries to save him and Zhao just pulls his hand away and lets himself die i know it shows cool. how prideful he is i mean and also that earlier talk he was doing Zhao the moonslayer mm-hmm. it shows the ego that's driving Zhao, and ultimately he was too prideful to accept zuko's hand and not get dragged down by the ocean spirit mm-hmm. i also think that is such an interesting thing the fact that the avatar Aang is literally can be an avatar for these other spirits like they yeah. i don't know what exactly happened but it sort of merged and it's not necessarily Aang doing that stuff it's the ocean spirit himself that turns into the massive water godzilla Deesh. thing that wreck shop um <laughs> the fish um and so that was really interesting to see. And then I believe, we'll talk about that in the next special, but I believe Aang also like talks about how difficult it was or like he grapples with the fact that he sort of gave himself over to the Ocean Spirit and the Ocean Spirit was taking down all these Fire Nation people. Um, like he has to grapple with that and that power and then what was done with that power uh, in the next episode. But in the moment, boy, it looks so cool. And it was really interesting to see another element of this like magic system. So a spirit, an ancient spirit, utilizing the avatar and using that power uh, in order to affect the mortal world, which, again, mm-hmm. we saw earlier with Roku, how that was able to happen as well. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great wrap up on the first season because we have Zhao is gone. He's no longer the villain, which is great because he was a good he was a very good season one villain. He's a very good beginner villain. He's crazy, he's iconic, but he's not important enough to stay at all. So he's just, he's gone. We have this huge finale where Aang uses his full avatar abilities, his full waterbending abilities to become this fish to end his big, the big water season. You have Yue becoming the moon, which is a very big moment for Sokka that impacts him a lot throughout the rest of the series. I think it's a great way to end the season, especially because it sets up Ozai being the big bad of the whole series. And you have Azula being set up to be another antagonist in the next season in particular, as well as the third season. I think that is also very intriguing. Right. Yeah. And to talk about some of the other things that this episode in particular does, that, as you said, wraps up a lot of what's been going on in the season and helps us roots us in where these characters are at now iroh when zhao is off on his little tirade about to capture the the koi fish and kill the moon spirit iroh tries to stop him tells him like zhao do not do this absolutely don't and so we see here an instance where iroh puts something above the nation's cause right he respects the spirit world clearly because of some sort of connection that he has right tying back into seeing the spirit dragon in the winter solstice episodes he pleads for Zhao to not go through with this to not undo the balance that the moon and the ocean spirits are providing he mentions that the firebenders like we need that balance as well he's really imploring him not to do that and Zhao is nearly convinced puts the fish back in water but then of course fire blasts him um but then Iroh also is the one who recognizes Yue has some of the moon spirit in her and I mm-hmm. definitely don't think he was present for when Yue described no. what happened. So the fact that he was able to understand based on her white hair that there's some sort of spiritual 
connection that she has um, and that she can be the key to this. And, and he gives essentially that solution and allows her to do it instead of allowing the moon to be destroyed and allowing the waterbenders power to be null, um, which would allow the fire nation to completely steamroll them. He chooses to restore balance to the spirit world and to stall uh, the advance of the fire nation. So that's another really interesting thing that happens here. The moral complexity Iro has in him, where just like Zuko, there's something above the mission uh, and the desires of the fire nation and the fire lord Ozai that that is more important for him. Another mm -hmm. thing that I think is really crucial in this episode comes with Zuko, who at the beginning is in a cave trying to hide from the blizzard. And he has Aang tied up next to him, who's still in the spirit world. And Zuko draws a distinction between himself and Aang, but then also mentions Azula, his sister. So he mentions that they were lucky. He says something like, my sister was born lucky. I was lucky to be born. That's something that Ozai said to him. Mm -hmm. um, and so he mentions that all throughout his life, he's had to suffer and he's had to grow strong from it. And he wouldn't change a thing. Like, that's what makes me who I am. But that gives us that sly little peek into more of Zuko and who he is, but then also sets up this sister, Azula, who we see at the very end of the episode, the cliffhanger for the season, is Ozai, still completely shadowed. We haven't seen Ozai's face yet, but he's addressing somebody who's bowing to him, and he says, now it's your turn to pursue the Avatar and succeed where your brother failed, something to that effect. And then we see Azula look up, and smile. Iroh is a traitor, and your brother Zuko is a failure. I have a task for you. And there it evil. is. Yes, evil. Yes, the evil. The setup for the next season is beautiful. It's just uh, the way that they're able to to connect these things, like to set them up have enough forethought to plan it out, but then put it in a way that isn't distracting. Like with the, uh, the storm episode where we saw Zula there. Um, and then in this one where now that Zhao is removed as that other big bad, we have Azula as a big bad coming through. It's just really effective the way that they're able to set up these character arcs and introduce new characters already immediately from the way Zugo talks about Azula mm -hmm. and from the glimpses we've seen of her, we already know that this character is going to be something, someone sadistic and vindictive and definitely going to be a great challenge for the gang moving into the next season. So, yep. as Good you said, setup. a great resolution to the season we have now and then a great lead-in into season two, book two, Earth. Earth. <laughs> And we will get to that in our next special, which should be coming out soon. But for now, that is all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at theboxoffishow at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Our second episode of our Avatar Last Airbender on Earth will be released most likely in two weeks, so be on the lookout for that. And tune in next week for when we do our 2022 Oscar movie draft. Have a great rest of your day.